my fellow Astorians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredus. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A Dance with Dragons is the longest of the books so far. It's also the darkest and least understood, thanks to being the most recent. It's the culmination also, so far, of George's style honed over the course of the prior books and the rest of his long career. It has the extended length of A Storm of Swords, the expanded pacing of A Feast for Crows. It brings POVs together like a Clash of Kings and has the setup of A Game of Thrones. If you're watching live, you can feel free to ask live questions. You can also send questions and comments ahead of time by joining us on one of our social media outlets, Facebook, Flick, Discord, or Slack. Yes, it is the final week of regular Dance with Dragons chapters. It's a pretty big milestone. We're going to have finished all the regular chapters in all the main five books to date. And well, that's pretty cool. We started not long after the conclusion of season eight. Our first book, we was pre- the COVID era, and there were a couple of breaks in there, some trips and traveling. Ever since uh, early in mm, A Storm of Swords, I guess, we've had a pretty straight run through. And well, like I've said more recently, uh, we'll be getting into the other material, the Winds of Winter pre-release chapters. We're recording our own versions of those to have audio versions. The community is participating. We're getting lots of different guest voices. If you uh, want to get involved in that, it's not too late. We're still fairly early in the process. Yeah, on that note, uh, the next chapter after Victorian that we need voices for is Mercy. So if you think you have a good voice for the Mercy chapter, we extra need Raph. That's a hard one to cast. Uh, There are over 100 parts between the chapters. So (laughs) there's a lot coming. You can look at the TWOW chapters, see what maybe you'd like to try out for. And maybe we'll write you back and say, actually, we'd like to use you for this voice. A lot of people, have, it's, it's gone that way so far, and we expect to continue that way. It's going to be a lot of fun. And either you can get involved or wait for the chapters to drop and listen to them and enjoy them. So either way, we're glad to be participating in this project. We're going to have fun with that, and we can't wait to drop those for you. As far as this week's chapters, the last three, it's The Queen's Hand, Return of the Harpy, a.k.a. A Catapulting of Corpses. Daenerys 10, Return to the Dithraki Sea, a.k.a. Very Bad Dreams. Epilogue, Return of the Spider, a.k.a. The one that manages to talk about every single plot line. If you listen to every episode of Valar Reedus, pat yourself on the back. That's a pretty big commitment. It's a lot of episodes. Uh, during the wrap-up episode next week, I'm going to get a couple of stats together about how long things were, some totals, some facts and figures like that should be fun a little trivia it'll be fun for the end there Uh, mostly we'll be of course discussing the series but i like those stats and things like that to hang out with and to to mess with and play with i'm a numbers nerd like that speaking of we finished the book with these three chapters they are long chapters combined they are longer than the four chapters of week 16 this is the fourth three chapter week we've done for a dance with dragons but it's the longest set of three 
Last week, three of the four chapters were in Slaver's Bay, and in general, Marine and the nearby plot lines, meaning the characters on their way to Marine, like Victorian, and prior to that, uh, Tyrion. In general, they've been featured more than Westeros at the end here. Uh, today, it's two out of three. Danny's is chapter 72. Her last chapter was chapter 53. Even without her, even without Daenerys, <laughs> during the 20-chapter span before hers, uh, in between her last two, there were four Barrison chapters, two Quentin chapters, so six Marine inside Marine. Two Tyrion chapters, which are just outside the walls of Marine, and two Victorian chapters, which are, you know, in Slaver's Bay. So that's 10 of the last 18 were Slaver's Bay. And one of those others was Arya, so it wasn't Westeros either. And 12 of the last 21, if you add in today. So that's a real big focus on Slaver's Bay. I'm ima- I guess that it probably will taper off early in the Winds of Winter, but that's part of what I, I'm referring to when I say these POVs are coming together. Marine, perhaps, is the biggest of all of those, but not the only. And that's part of what makes the epilogue so important today and probably why George packs information on so many different non-Essos-based plot lines into that one chapter. Of course, Essos does come up, but mostly it's about stuff happening on the Westeros side to remind us of how much we have temporarily set aside but are excited to get back to. We've had a bit with Jamie, um, Cersei twice, and now Kevin. So it's been a very Lannister look at things on the Westerosi side. But of course, most of this book has been away from places like King's Landing, places that we're really familiar with that we spent a lot of the previous four books at. So the wall today, or rather in general, has come up a lot. And today it comes up a lot. Kevin thinks about how much, how cold it must be up there, given that there's snow in King's Landing, making the red keep white. And It comes up as well, even if we consider the building grayscale plot and the undead in general and the possible link between the two. It's a surprise that Yunkai, of all places, has a siege featuring flying plague corpses, not something going on in the north, not something going on at the wall. (laughs) And north of Marine, Danny falls asleep next to a broken wall, crawling with ants that she compares to the, quote, wall of Westeros that she has yet to see, but mm, we're guessing she will. The return of Varys to wield power from the shadows is fitting given how his shadow on the wall speech is one of the best examples we have of how power functions. It's kind of a a go-to example of that concept. It's his aim to remove Tommen from the Iron Throne and place his own candidate there. And along these lines, seats of power are a theme today too. Two different men near the top seem to say, overcompensate with extra large chairs that being Mace and Hisdar. John and Barristan and others aren't big on being flashy, sometimes going too far in eschewing the trappings of power. But also, the trappings of power can go too far. Hisdar's absurd dragon throne is set aside by Barristan, and Mace Tyrell's ridiculous hand chair is noted to be, well, ridiculous. Even more ridiculous than trying to make Tommen imposing by seating him on the Iron Throne which looks more imposing without him. The young boy who loves kittens is just not going to add scariness to anything, really. Danny chose herself to a modest seat because she doesn't need to be flashy. It's not really her style, and she knows that people know how powerful she is without it, right? While these blowhards are overestimating themselves, Danny has seen the power of learning to act a bit like a young girl to make her enemies underestimate her. That includes sitting on a bench instead of a throne, right? But today... 
she rides a true seat of power. Drogon is real power. His shadow on the wall is not a metaphor to be discussed philosophically. You don't go, hmm, is that a trick of perception? Is that a metaphor of some kind? Is that an example of some other sort? No, it's an immediate warning to run. <laughs> it's real. Just ask those horses in Danny's chapter that stampede. They didn't even look up. They saw the shadow and it was off to the races. Real power. Forget single Dornish princes, poor Quentin. She can cook entire armies. That is power. That is way more than anything Varys has ever discussed with Tyrion or otherwise. I'm not so sure Danny will ever be able to use that phrase, I'm just a young girl, anymore now that she's a dragon rider. <laughs> but uh, that said, I still think the Thraki will underestimate her one last time before, you know, estimating her. Kevin and Barristan don't have that in common with her, but they have a few things in common with each other. They're both ruling and not all that cut out for it. They're kind of interim piecemeal rulers, like, well, someone's got to do it, that kind of thing. Both of them make quite a few highly competent decisions while also making some observations and judgments that are more questionable. And I'm not referring to moral judgments. I mean, we could refer to that that way. I'm just talking about they're both wrong about a lot of stuff. And it's directly related to them not being trained or prepared for this role. The murder of Kevin is about destabilization and distrust. And if Barristan is murdered by the shave pate next book, well, I'd rather him not have that in common with Kevin. But it's certainly possible that killing to cause destabilization would be a move that makes sense to certain parties. Denial is again an unhappy theme today. Danny's thoughts on what must be going on back at Marine with the hostages and other things, they're not very accurate. They're not very insightful. They're very wrong. It's another reminder of her lack of experience. There's far less excuse for Barristan and Kevin's brands of denial, though. These are much older fellows with a lot of life experience, yet they still have some peculiar things they won't face. Like Kevin ponders killing his own son, not directly. He thinks of making Lancel a member of the Kingsguard. Have you seen that kid? Why would that be a good idea? And most, so many Kingsguard end up dead, and, and it's not like Lancel is particularly well-equipped for that. So similarly, Tywin had denials about his twins, right? And of course, Kevin has denials about Tywin as well, about things we've been over before with regards to how he would perceive Cersei's walk of shame. Barristan is not wrong that Danny is alive, but he doesn't even admit the possibility that she isn't. So that's a form of denial. He turns out being right, but he behaves as if there's only one possibility, even though he doesn't know. Many of the Yunkai are also in denial about their chances of winning in battle or otherwise. I mean, this is something Barristan has more certainty in. And, you know, as an experienced military commander, you can see why when he looks at slaves on stilts and doesn't feel too worried. Yeah, he's more worried about being stabbed in the dark or making the wrong political move. And you can see why. Slaves on stilts thinking he can beat that, that's not unearned confidence. That's reasonable. There is certainly some reckoning with ghosts today. Mostly the recent dead. Barristan's memories often bring up names from the past that we have a great interest in. But today it's the recently dead Quentin whose shade is on his mind most of all, and even more so for Garrison Archibald. Masande, who had recently been thought of as a ghost by Barristan, fittingly helps Quentin pass on since no one else can or will. 
Kevin thinks that though Cersei and Marjorie are not there in the council chamber, their presence could be felt poisoning the air like ghosts at a feast. But it's Tywin's ghost he spends the most time pondering. Then he thinks of the Targaryen princelings Rhaenys and Aegon. Aegon was slain by Sir Gregor himself, who is something of a walking ghost now too, and casts a big shadow on Kevin's chapter. Rhaenys was killed in the sack of King's Landing, but her black kitten was not, and is perhaps Balerion, the so-called bad cat that Tommen refers to, who also casts a shadow on this chapter. It's that same cat who supposedly stole food from Lord Tywin, the same cat who led Arya down into the tunnels and shadows where she saw Varys and Illyrio plotting amidst the dragon skulls. And Varys emerges a bit like a ghost himself. Kill Pycelle and Kevin as the fruits of that plotting ripen at long last. And he announces that Aegon is not a ghost after all. He lives. Daenerys speaks to the ghost of her brother and others like Sir Willem Derry while also thinking of her lost son and son and stars and wondering if she'll soon be riding in the Nightlands herself with them. It's also a conclusion with councils. With Danny, who is alone, save for Drogon, most of the chapter, the councils are with those very same ghosts we just mentioned. With Kevin, it's a central feature of his chapter, a council session to discuss the affairs of the realm, to wrap us up and catch us up on things we've been missing. For Barristan, it's a roundtable. A lot of y'all cited it as being a bit like Camelot. Everyone gets a chance to voice their opinion. It is round, you know? At least that's what happens at the start, though. By the end, it's nothing like Camelot. The corpses are flying, right? (laughs) Uh, Probably not the manner in which those folk expected their bodies to be handled. In this, there's a simple and direct message translated by the Green Grace. Thus does Yunkai make reply to your offers, sir. I warned you that you would not like their answer. Like so many chapters here at the end of the book, the time for talk is over. Disputes are resolved by turning to violence. Key deaths are going to kick off some serious and seriously hard to predict consequences. It was so at the wall, and here at Marine, probably similar, and Varus explicitly tells Kevin that his murder will result in more deaths. Spilling the blood of a key figure can lead to so many more. Even the rumor of Danny's death is doing a lot of work. And in her own chapter, she remembers the key deaths of people in her own life. But not us. We remain a proudly peaceful podcast. We are all talk, and that's how you like it. Starting off with some thanks from y'all. It looks like Amy Blackfire and Valerie Reedus. As we know it, I'm not crying. You're crying. Thanks for all you do, Ashe and Aziz. Well, thank you, Amy, for being with us for so long and following through the entire run of Valerie Reedus. As you know, we're moving on to the Winds of Winter chapters and Fire and Blood and other things. Well, we've got lots to do, and when the Winds of Winter fully drops, well we'll be ready to go with that as well. So it's not an ending so much as a new beginning, shall we say. (laughs) Monkismo also sends a super chat. This series has given me an all new appreciation for A Song of Ice and Fire. Thanks for that. Che is the best, but Aziz is good. (laughs) He's very, very good. (laughs) Is that in the old Lena voice? (laughs) Cheers from North Carolina. Thank you very much, Monkismo. Yep, same here. I have a new appreciation for Song of Ice and Fire too. Obviously, it's not my first reread, but going i never went over it in this level of detail honing in like this slowest reread yeah it is my slowest reread <laughs> for sure but the most focused the mo i never wrote as i was reading before i never wrote about every single chapter so yeah even for me new appreciation new understanding i think all of us 
just know the books better now. We're all more prepared to speak to them. When the Windsor winner arrives, you're going to hit it running. You're going to catch the references. You're going to be ready for the things between the lines. Yeah, you, you should feel powerful with your Song of Ice and Fire knowledge. And here comes New Dad Podcast with a big super chat. Thank you very much, Tommy. He says, a special super chat for a special occasion. Amazing reread. Great work to the entire history of Westeros team. Thank you very much, Tommy. Yeah, we appreciate that. It has been a lot of fun. We're glad to have made it this far. And looking back on it, it just makes me smile. Let's get going. The Queen's Hand. Return of the Harpy, a.k.a. a catapulting of corpses. Yeah, technically they're trebuchets, but I couldn't think of a good dead body word that starts with T. Hmm. Yep. Another extremely rich Barristan chapter, subtle at times, direct at other times, and with memories and thoughts that help us understand what's happening in other parts of the story. The general attitude seems to be that the longer Daenerys is gone, the less likely she will ever return. It's somewhat true, rationally speaking, but it's also another case of belief trumping reality. Rationality isn't necessarily how everyone's going to look at this, and if they did, they'd be wrong. So really... No one has any idea what happened. She flew off. Some people think she's dead. Some people just don't know. Some people are like, well, she can't control the dragons, so she can't come back. That's actually the closest to the truth. But really, what people are thinking doesn't necessarily reflect what the mass of everyone believes. They're going to believe what they believe, whether it's through cold logic, passionate hope, combination of the two or things in between. Similarly, a big part of this chapter is preparing for the possibility of battle. And with that comes the wild card of the dragons. Similarly, what will they do? The dragons will do what the dragons will do. Yeah, just like, just like the people will believe what they believe. The dragons are going to do what they do. Joe writes that we join Barry at the peak of the pyramid, actually looking past the city, out to the horizon where dawn is marked by a thin red slash. Perhaps it looks similar to the comet we once saw all the way back in Clash of Kings. Yeah, that's a good, good call. I think it probably does. At least reminds us of that. You know, the comment's a little more specific, but still. It's meant, I think, to herald the coming of change, if not the coming of Daenerys. And Barristan certainly hopes for that latter part. He hopes for the coming of Daenerys, the return of Daenerys. It starts by closing out a short-lived POV. The Dornish prince was three days dying. Pretty gruesome start, right? I mean, poor kid. Uh, It reminds us of Asha a little bit, meaning that she was an ironborn who has seen plenty of brutality in her life and caused some too. Barristan, same. But this seeing burned people is just another level. It's beyond even the brutality they're used to. Pretty much anyone who doesn't worship her lore and has seen burned bodies in this series has weighed in. A lot of people have weighed in and it's pretty much always like... This fire is a... Hideous way to die. Yeah, I mean, it's bad. Even Danny thinks about it. Uh, she doesn't think about it at this level. She doesn't see quite how bad it was. But when she's on the Dothraki Sea there, she thinks about people in Daznak's pit and realizing that Drogon had I mean, burned a few innocents. And you know, obviously people talk about how would you rather die. People point out that, oh, if you were burned at the stake, if you were lit on fire, you would die of smoke inhalation. It's not that bad. That is not what's happening to Tyrion. I mean, to Quentin here. That is very true. Yeah, he there was no smoke. <laughs> he just pure so he's burning hell. Yeah, so it's just awful. Yeah, really, really bad. It's the kind of sentiment that almost makes one agree that maybe the dragons do need to die. On the other hand, if they do, you first, slavers. They need to die more. Fair? Yeah, fair. 
Uh, as end of the book chapters tend to do, this one sets up future plot lines. Obviously, the corpses are flying about are one example, but Barrison takes notice of several characters, and we should remember that while he's very competent, his inexperience with intrigue can throw his judgment off on certain characters. Let's do a quick rundown. He weighs in on Strong Belwas, who he likes, and there's this great quote here. They made Strong Belwas sick. Someone must die. Someone will. Many someones, like as not. Yeah, Barrison's not wrong about that. Yeah, <laughs> I, I hope Strong Bellis gets a shot at revenge or something. It's kind of lighthearted, but it's also an accurate prediction. Not even really foreshadowing. It's just straight up, yeah, yeah, that's going to happen. Many someones are going to die, no doubt. He, he likes Archibald. He turns out smarter than he thought. Um, he doesn't like Garrus, which mm, we've talked about this before a little bit. Some, people, some of you suggested maybe it's because Garrus is handsome. He doesn't like Jamie for same, maybe similar reasons. He doesn't like flashy people. But some of that might be a little unfair. Gareth seems okay to uh, most of y'all and to, to me and as well. He thinks highly of the green grace. There's this quote, an aura of wisdom and dignity seemed to surround her that Sir Barrison could not help but admire. This is a strong woman and she has been a faithful friend to Daenerys. Okay, now that is probably a red flag. Like no one is that trustworthy, <laughs> let alone her who's probably... The opposite of trustworthy. How can he be so trusting? <laughs> yeah. Like, is it this chivalry? Is he just, tr is he taught to just, uh, well, if you're old and a woman, revere the 80 year old woman, just yeah. always. Yeah. And hate on the young, <laughs> handsome man. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of, uh, that's like, that's a good thing to compare it to. Yeah. Hating on the Garrus. Yeah. It's, it might be just who they are without judging what they've done. Uh, just like a, a knee jerk reaction based on initial impressions and, and appearances. That's a good way. That's actually a really good contrast. But yeah, and it doesn't really make sense. Nina writes, it's a little ironic that Skahas mocks Barristan as hand by calling him an old woman's hand, wrinkled and feeble. But that's probably the Green Grace's old woman's hand is quite possibly guiding the sons of the harpy. What more appropriate, like the sons of the harpy. The harpy is a female figure. We've been over this before. And the harpy is an ancient figure. So, like, as far as themes go, as far as imagery goes, the Green Grace fits the Harpy really well. Uh, of course, that's not 100% proof, but mm, we've been through this whole arc of Marine. Have we really come close to naming anyone else as the leader of the Sons of the Harpy? Not really, no. <laughs> it's pretty much just been Green Grace, or we're going to be really surprised. Uh, so we'll have to see. He doesn't trust Skahas. Fair, but he probably should not trust him even more. And Masande, he seems to judge her pretty well. This is a great quote. I like this one. It's exciting. It had been Masande who suggested the ploy to him. He would never have thought of such a thing himself. In King's Landing, bribes had been Littlefinger's domain, whilst... Lord Varys had the task of fostering division amongst the crown's enemies. His own duties had been more straightforward. Eleven years of age, yet Missandei is as clever as half the men at this table and wiser than all of them. I have instructed the Green Grace to present the offer only when all of the Yunkish commanders have assembled to hear it. So this is, that quote is referring to Missandei's idea of offering a ransom to the Yunkish, which, of course, well, let's, let's get into that in a minute, uh, the, well, how that plan's going to work. But first, I love that he says 
Barrison's humility comes up every once in a while. This is a, a low-key version of it. He says that Masande is wiser than all of the men at this table. Barrison is one of the men at this table. <laughs> so he basically just said, she's smarter than me, which, yep, fair play. Him noticing that she's doing things that are reminiscent of Varus is pretty cool because, well, if Varus is going to be an enemy of Team Daenerys, which is entirely possible, they're going to need people that can handle that type of line of thinking and think that way. Because obviously Barrison didn't even, it says he didn't even occur to him, didn't even think of such a thing. So that's important to rounding out Daenerys's squad, so to speak. It's also very much foreshadowing for the epilogue. Two chapters from now, he's directly describing the kind of thing Varys was known to do. And that's exactly the thing Varys does as he emerges from the shadows in the epilogue. Now, Tyrion, too, we, we must mention here, and we already noted a potential connection between Tyrion and Missandei. One thing we can't fully predict is how Danny's counselors will get along with each other. We have talked a good bit about how she might react to people coming to her, how she might react to Tyrion, even bringing up people like Makoro, the return of Jorah, things like that. We focused on that a lot, but how will they engage with each other? That's a whole ball of wax. And it's unclear who even's going to be there to interact with each other. So it's one thing to predict how some people will interact when we're not even sure that they will. But Barrison is not going to be an intriguer guy, even if he survives to that point. Tyrion and, and Missande perhaps are the best equipped amongst Danny's people to do that. And we've already seen a connection between them, possibly. Obviously, they haven't met or spoken but we noted that she likes books and scrolls. And obviously Tyrion, that's like first chapter Tyrion stuff. So hopefully that's something that maybe leads to them working together, getting along. Nina writes big praise to Missandei here, who shows amazing levels of empathy for both a child and herself being a former slave. Quentin was completely persona non grata to her. She didn't know Quentin at all. She's a, Quentin's from Westeros, a guest of, Daenerys, but they didn't probably interact. And this person tried to steal Danny's dragons by force. It's not exactly a friendly thing, although we know the circumstances aren't quite so simple. So despite that, um, she could have easily, you know, despite easily being able to look at him as someone that was an enemy, she was sympathetic and saw things, I think, as a lot of as us would, as a lot of the readers would. And interestingly, no one else is there with Quentin to, to see him off because, of course, his two friends aren't allowed to be there. They're imprisoned. And interestingly, too, the blue graces don't show up. It's kind of a throwaway line. Barristan thinks maybe there's just so many of them are dead by now. But it might be a, a sign of loyalty or lack of loyalty given that if we suspect the green grace of, of being the, the harpy, then the lesser graces might also be following her lead the Blue Graces, of course, are the healers. And you would think that this would be a pretty normal place for them to show up for this poor burned kid. So let's talk about the, the offer. Masande's clever offer is what started us on talking about Masande. And why would the Yunkish slavers give up hostages for their weight in gold? That's maybe from the first point is why would they even do that? They're super, super wealthy. Miranese slavers are willing to throw away huge amounts of money on murders, right? So why would younger slavers who were probably richer than Miranese slavers at this point, given how things have proceeded, be moved by gold, a, a small amount of gold relatively. It's actually a lot of gold, but 
relatively speaking, it's not. The amount of wealth they stand to continue to amass if they can turn the slavery faucet back on. But if it stays off, then the loss of a few thousand gold or even a few hundred thousand gold isn't really that much compared to their future outlook. So the part of the reason it might work, though, is the offer is aimed at the sellswords, not the Yunkish. Yes, the Yunkish themselves, they won't be moved by the offer of gold, but their employees might be. And, well, that's part of why things proceed so quickly after that. Because both sides can think this through and see where it's going to lead. Both sides can say, oh, just like Barristan is doing. He, Barristan is saying, okay, well, if they refuse the offer, if they refuse to accept our ransom money, then we're going to attack. The youngest slavers on the other side could probably figure that out. They can say, mm, you know, if we don't accept this offer, that might be it. There may be no more negotiations. We're asking for them to kill the dragons. They're probably going to say no. They can kind of think this through and, and realize what's next. It's going to be fighting. So they strike first. Skahaz is thinking the same thing. He's like, look, they're going to refuse. We may as well attack now. He says the Green Grace will accomplish nothing. She may as well be conspiring with the young Kais if we sit here. Now, that's a fair point. They could be negotiating, but really, they could have been negotiating anyway. There's a lot of ways for them to meet in secret or to pass messages. I don't think that's that big a deal. What might be a big deal is they're having this conversation about these offers in front of a lot of people. It only takes one pit fighter or one random person in this room to go pass that message on and say, look, if you don't accept this offer, they're going to attack you. So it's pretty easy. There's multiple reasons to see why the Yunkish just refuse the offer and then attack because they can see that the offer is a prelude to fighting one way or the other. More examples of why Galaza Galare is kind of subtly outing herself here. She talks about the fragility of the peace, but she makes all these exaggerated points that are kind of easy to call out. They're not, it's not really that subtle. She talks about the pale mare and how it's causing all this trouble, but the pale mare isn't really, the dragons don't have anything to do with that. Daenerys doesn't have anything to do with that. The pale mare came and is going to do its damage. This hostage situation isn't really related. Not at all, really. It's kind of, a, she's conflating two things that don't really have that much to do with each other. She says, the dragons haunt the skies, feasting on the flesh of children. Barrison le legitimately thinks that that hasn't happened. Ever since Hosea, Drogon killed Hosea, and then since then, the dragons got loose. They've only killed the slavers who tried to stop them from taking their pyramids. Mostly, they've gone to eat the free sheep that, that Barrison has set up in Daznak's pit. So, yeah, it's kind of like, by, as an aside, your Daznak's pit's kind of like the new dragon pit, except they're allowed to come and go as they please. And like the, the original dragon pit, they were locked in there. And speaking of those pyramids, she says that the green grace says that these masters of these pyramids are now homeless beggars. Oh, come on. <laughs> they are not. They're slavers. He didn't, <laughs> the dragons didn't take all their money. <laughs> this isn't some dragon horde situation. Nah, they can still go into their pyramid. He's not like hanging out on the lower levels. This is, she's exaggerating all over the place here. And yeah, Barrison doesn't call her out on it, but he guess, I guess he continues to think of her as one of Daenerys' great friends. He does come close to thinking of, of some maybe truths here. He's like, well, how does his dar stop the violence if he's not in control of it? It's a fair point. He's just not connecting the dots. It's like, well, 
Maybe because she's doing it. Maybe it's maybe he is just a figurehead, like we've been saying all along. And and look how coordinated it was, right? As soon as they're locked up, within three days, you have 30 murders very professionally done. It's not piecemeal. It's not like a couple of different factions are upset that his dar has been thrown in jail, so they're all striking in division. No, it's very highly coordinated. Uh, Viserion and, and Rhaegal, of course, are an issue given they're flying around the city and no one knows what they're going to do. But it's also Drogon's shadow that they are wary of because his return, well, there's a lot of, it's a loaded possibility. Should Drogon return to Marine without Daenerys mounted on his back, the city would erupt in blood and flame. Of that, Ser Barristan had no doubt. The very men sitting at this table would soon be at dagger points with one another. A young girl she might be, but Daenerys Targaryen was the only thing that held them all together. Yeah, it really is a large variety of people that she's leading. She is, among other things, a rescuer, as we said, but she's also a uniter. That's a major topic that we get into with our Many Faces or a High uh, episode that we released somewhat recently. It was actually recorded way back at Con of Thrones a couple years ago. But it's that same topic, the idea that one of the main traits of Azor High all these legends, one of the recurring themes is a uniter, bringing different peoples together, people who previously had warred or had no contact with each other at all. That's a really important concept to leading people against the darkness. You need to unite humanity. And well, who's doing that? Well, John's done some of that, but Danny's doing it on an even larger scale. She might have to do it on an even, even larger scale when she gets to Westeros. We'll see. Just in his example, Nina writes just a few of the different nationalities represented just here in this room. We got Skahas as Giscari, Marcellin, born on Nath, Simon Strikeback as Astapori, the new stalwart shields commander is a summer islander named Tal Torak. We got Romo the Dothraki there. Gray, we actually don't know where Grey Worm is from. Uh, Storm, these Stormcrow commanders, they're colorful figures, but we don't know where they come from. But still, there's room for even more nationalities represented here. They're just not all named. It doesn't necessarily make sense that Barrison would be able to name everyone in the room and where they're from. That might be a little, little unrealistic considering how many people are in the room. Point being, it's pretty cool. There's a lot of that going on. And this really ties in well, not only with Daenerys' entire arc, but what's happening right now. The stallion who mounts the world is also a great uniter of peoples. If you really look at the wording of that prophecy, it says, well, the, the, this great figure, this great call will create the largest Kalasar ever of all Dothraki, if not all people, period. So we coined the phrase, the mayor who mounts the world, because Daenerys is no stallion. And that seems to be who the prophecy is pointing to, her. And um, that's probably what she's doing, right? She's off there in the Dothraki Sea, and pretty good chance she comes back with a whole lot of them. <laughs> and that's why, too, for circle back to alliances and provocations and all the war situation here, this is why there's some wisdom in Barrison going through the motions first. The disparate alliance that he thinks of as fragile actually works a lot better if they are attacked. And that's because they're united by a common enemy. If Young Kai starts hurling corpses at them and attacks the city, all of a sudden, all their little petty bickering becomes, oh, hold off on the bickering. We've got bigger problems. So by allowing Young Kai to attack first, even though that wasn't necessarily Barrison's plan, it worked out really well because they are forced to unite against that foe. 
And of course, again, they may have done that because of Masande's plan. This may have been something Masande even realized. If Masande might be this clever that she saw all of this, all these moves ahead, she's like, okay, they're going to refuse. They're going to attack. That's going to get all these arguing people to unite. I I would not put that past her. I mean, that is the kind of thing that maybe Tyrion or Varsh or Littlefinger could realize. Uh, Other of these like smooth intrigue types and Masande may be in their level. We'll see. Finally, Scott from Skaha's perspective, finally, he's like, okay, really? You're gonna, you're gonna do what now? Is this- You would break King Hisdar's peace, old man? I would shatter it. Once, long ago, a prince had named him Barristan the Bold. A part of that boy was in him still. Yeah, so finally, maybe Skaha's is like, at last, this guy's showing the truth of his nickname. Maybe he's not such an old wrinkly hand after all. Uh, maybe it's not as soon as Skaha's wanted, but at least he's like, okay, fine, we're going to fight. That's that's exactly what he wanted. It's also important to notice that, yeah, why hasn't Skaha's made his move sooner? What is keeping him in check? Well, there's still the possibility that Daenerys will return. He's definitely on team. Danny might be alive. Also, the Unsullied. The Unsullied are hugely powerful. They're the by far the most powerful army in the vicinity. And they are pretty much loyal to Barrison at this point. You know, he could screw that up somehow. He probably won't. But right now, they're mostly following his lead because he's following Daenerys' lead. And Skahaz knows that too. They're too much to reckon with. So whatever Skahaz is planning, he needs to make sure he's aware of the Unsullied. And that's why a lot of predictions for Skahaz's next step involve waiting for the Unsullied to be deployed. Once they're outside the city, then maybe he can make his moves. There's still some problems with that. For example, does he really think that he can keep the city after that? Does he really think that the Unsullied can be kept out if he does that? I'm not sure he's actually that audacious, and audacious might not be the right word, because I think that's foolish. I don't think he could keep Meereen. If If he thinks he can lock the Unsullied out, by waiting for them to leave and then closing the doors and having his brazen beast man the walls and all that. I don't think that would work. I just don't think, I think it would cause a lot of death, but I think he knows he would lose that if it came to it. So I'm not sure that's what he's thinking. That doesn't necessarily mean he won't do, make a play. It just means that he might wait for the Unsullied to be gone so they can't stop him. I don't think he wants to make an enemy of them though. That's, that's a part of this, the permutation of this theory that I'm not 100% sold on. Because I think I think he still wants to. I think he wants to stay alive, you know. And I think making an enemy of Unsullied might uh, go against that. But I bet I could be wrong. Anyway, another interesting point here: Cameron of the Count, one of the famous pit fighters, he makes this. He floats this idea to have the pit fighters steal a ship and then go down the river and then attack the Yunkish from behind. That's pretty much going to happen. It just won't be the pit fighters doing it. It's going to be Victorian. His Ironborn are going to show up and pretty much do just that. Obviously, they weren't part of this planning session, but they're playing their role as if they were. But how nice of them. Speaking of a variety of cultures, Barrison thinks back to his own. And when he's off to go talk to the Dornish, he has this moment where he thinks the hard part he'd left in Dornish hands. His grandfather would have been aghast, which is like, remember the prejudice of the Dornish marches against the Dornish. So Selmy's grandfather, probably a proud, typical meaning martial, warlike man of the marches grew up hating the Dornish and he's look at his grandson now working with them. <laughs> he's like, Grandpa Selmy would say something like, 
you have just cause to execute these Dornish and instead you're going to work with them? What are you doing? Compared to other white knights that have been named Hand. Those are some other ghosts that are very much present here. He doesn't think of them by name, but hey, you got us. We looked them up. There's only three. Ryan Redwine, Kristen Cole, and Marston Waters. And Barristan's story has echoes of all three quite possibly. Small wonder Barristan worries about serving as Daenerys' hand. The three Kingsguard we've heard of serve as hand. Ryan, Kristen, and Marston are hardly the best examples of hands in Westerosi history. Barristan shares similarities to all three. Like Ryan, Barristan is a long-serving member of the Kingsguard and a legend in his own time. Ryan was also like the guy of his era. Just the top knight. Prowess, chivalry, all that. 40 years serving. So also he had that longevity. And then he became late in life a hand and sucked at it. We don't know why. We don't know the details of him sucking at it. Even though Fire and Blood crosses over that period, it doesn't really get into details. He just wasn't good at it. We don't know precisely what he did wrong. Kristen Cole, we discussed, we really went deep with a comparison to him and Barristan in our White Cloak is Still White episode. Kristen is a really powerful man who wanted to end negotiations and bring battle to his enemies. He preferred taking the field and settling things there. And Marston Waters the third, he was the one that tried to arrest Lara Rogare on false charges of trying to poison the king. Does that sound familiar? Barristan quite possibly tried to arrest Hisdar on false charges of trying to poison the queen. Now, he doesn't know they're false charges. Quite possibly, Marston Waters didn't either. But it's a notable similarity. And it, again, shows you that George loves to uh, foreshadow A Song of Ice and Fire using his historical texts. And that's a great example of that. He's not simple with it, though. <laughs> These three different characters reflecting one is something we've seen before. That's hard to look for. But when you find it, it kind of stands out. Also, interesting comparison to Tywin, of all people, who was known for letting everyone speak at council. And that's something Barristan does here, too. Now, Tyrion has a cynical view of that. He's like, yeah, well, what really happens is he lets everyone talk so they can feel listened to but the actual council session is a sham. He's already decided what to do. He just wants them to feel listened to because it's better for morale, but he doesn't actually listen to them. Barristan is actually listening, I think, but also we see the downside of this roundtable scenario is that it takes a while. It's slow. It's a slow process. Uh, John noted the same thing about the free folk way of doing things, about how everyone gets the voice at council and how it can be darn slow. But there's... Uh, additional fairness to that. There's there's definitely good sides to that. So talking about the the wind blown for a second, we don't know what they were. It's mentioned or what their deal was. Were they just trying to let the dragons out? Is it was did they actually accomplish their goal? Did they not care about capture, capturing one, or were they planning on capturing a dragon and just not letting Quentin take it and keeping it for themselves, like capture a dragon and ransom it back to Daenerys in exchange for Pentos? Maybe that was their plan. There's a lot of possibilities. There's probably possibilities we haven't considered. Point being, a lot of people, even in the story, are wondering about it. It's a good segue to talking about this next part. Garrus gets upset. He lets his he vents when Barristan comes to talk to them. And there's some good back and forth. Quentin is a difficult topic for them to discuss. They were really close to him, so they have raw emotions about the whole thing, and his death isn't, wasn't that long ago. And Garrus also probably has that 
I was right all along feeling going on. He was telling Quentin, this is a bad idea. This is a bad idea. But Barristan's like, don't go too far with your language. Don't insult Daenerys. It's not her fault. We're all serving the, the people we're sworn to here. And Garrus points out, he's like, look, we had to do this. He was our prince. We're sworn. We, we told him not to, but once he decided to do it, we're his sworn men. We really didn't have a choice. That's, to Barristan, that's a good argument because Barristan's like, yeah, I too have followed the orders of crappy people in my life or followed bad orders. He, he doesn't think of Quentin as crappy, but he thinks of people who were, uh, who gave far more awful orders, although maybe less suicidal. So it could be a problem here, this whole issue of the windblown and Pentos, right? Barristan may have overpromised. I, we really wonder what, what the deal here because Danny did not want to do that. And it, it seems like a, almost an outlier for Barristan's methods here. He wants to do what Danny wants and he has a hard choice here. Either he lets the hostages die, which Danny doesn't want, or he gives Pentos away, which Danny doesn't want. So he doesn't really have a, a correct choice in his mind. Either way, he's going to do something that she doesn't want. But also, Garrus's anger is really important. Garrus's anger is foreshadowing not his behavior, but perhaps the reaction of Dorn as a whole. They're not going to get the whole story. They're not going to get the true version. And even if they do, they might find a way to blame Daenerys or just not take it very well to be vindictive about it. So this may be part of pushing Dorne towards Aegon. In fact, I have a bad feeling about Garrus and Archibald making it back to Dorne. I have a feeling they won't because if they do, then they will tell the real story. And that might put Dorne's anger to rest, or at least Doran Martell's, if he's still alive by that point. Uh, but maybe the cat will be out of the bag. Maybe the flames will be already burning, and it'll be too late to say, hey, wait, Danny didn't hurt Quentin. She wasn't even there. It's not her fault. But that might be the impression that a lot of people have, and once that impression is out there, it might be too late to change it. So that might be, Garrus's anger might, to sum that up, Garrus's anger might be summary of how the rest of Dorne is going to take it and even as fair or not that it might be go, might go that way and well as far as how the rest of this plan goes we'll see Barristan offers them this choice they take it and then we know from the Winds of Winters chapter that the windblown doof turn on the slavers we don't know if the hostages were rescued successfully or not I suspect they probably were but we'll see after all that, Barrison returns to the top of the pyramid. It's been kind of a full circle day. Child cupbearers are still there. It's kind of a little reminder of who he's there to protect and, and who are there. Such an issue, the hostages too. They're cupbearers, but they're also hostages. And then he sees a different kind of child when he sees Viserion, different kid, right? So dragons and children, not necessarily a pairing that works that way, but in this case, they, they are kind of paired. They're all Danny's children. Nina wonders if this isn't even more foreshadowing of their death. They're playing this game that's, Seems like spin the bottle because when Barristan thinks about it, he's like, yeah, I played that game too. It involved kissing. You spin something and when it points at someone, you know, whatever happens, happens. I mean, these are like 12-year-olds. So they're probably, it's probably not too serious like that, but they're spinning a dagger, not a bottle. And, I, and you know, it's kind of like, hmm, that's kind of ominous, isn't it? So maybe it's not meant that way, but this could be a bad sign that these... <laughs> The daggers pointing at these different kids is, is an indication that they're not going to live very long. It also kind of reminds me of the final scene in the epilogue where there's a bunch of kids with daggers. But those are, those are child slaves and these are uh, noble-born kids. A little different, but still they're all kids, right? And as, as the, the lesson of the 
of the uh, water gardens is that they're all just children. Skaha is wearing a wolf's mask now, which is another piece of symbolism. There's a lot of work done with the masks and what the symbols behind the animals mean given the particular scene. So a wolf in a throne room. Oh, that's a band name, by the way. Wolves in the throne room. That's a kind of a reference to someone who's a danger to the power structures in place here. Skaha has his own agenda. He might be based on our previous conversations about what he might do given a chance about his recurring violence towards the children, his need to kill them, his need to to make that move. It's kind of like an hour of the wolf with that wolf mask. Lord Cregan Stark, he was the man presiding over the hour of the wolf and many executions. That was, uh, he came in and ordered a lot of people killed. A lot of them actually ended up going to the wall instead, but same difference. Big powerful guy comes in, doesn't really listen to other people, kind of talks over a lot of people, says, no, you guys are soft. You don't understand. These guys are going to kill us. It's kill or be killed. This isn't negotiation time. You guys are, you know, it's a similar kind of attitude, like aggressive, talking about how aggressive the enemies are and thinking everybody else is taking them too lightly. So yeah, some good similarities there. Barristan thinks about rain and how that is merciful. He's like, ah, finally putting out the dragon's fires. But Nina suggests it's symbolic in the opposite way. The dragons are the way to get rid of slavery. That's their purpose, potentially. We're going to speak more on that in Daenerys 10 in the next chapter, because there's a lot of that same symbolism present, where the dragon's behavior really tells a lot about both Danny's future and about how she can handle the situation and how she's gotten herself immersed in politics when she really should just be a dragon. Another little hint about Skaz coming in to kill the kids is just when he comes in to announce that the corpses are starting to be hurled, he storms in and, and one of the little kids, kind of brave, like gets in his way and he just smacks the kid out of the way. He just smacks him. I mean, it's not a, that big a deal compared to all the violence going on around, but just casually smacking kids is, you can read into that. And it's not good, right? One thing he does smartly, we've talked about mistakes he's made and good moves he's made. One good move he's made is kind of eschew this whole, I'm not the hand, I'm not the hand. And you might say it would be good for him to take a little authority, kind of like how John is refusing it. But the problem is he doesn't want to create a new position that someone can take from him and usurp that power. You don't want to create a power structure that someone else can take and rule through you or instead of you. So Barrison wants to project that the power is not his. It's Danny's power. He's wielding power on her behalf. That doesn't mean creating new offices or promoting himself to an office that he was not given by her. If she had named him Hand, okay then. He's not about to promote himself when she's the only one that can do that. These power games, there's a lot of nuance there, right? Like, it's, it's really interesting. Even someone like Barrison, who's not an expert in these things, still has a lot of insight that other people who are kind of expert might not even pick up on. There's a similar line here, let her dragons die as well, is what the Green Grace says. Hearing the Green Grace also say the dragon should die is pretty rough, but it's kind of similar to Selyse saying, let them die. Can't save them, cost more lives to save them than otherwise. It's a similar argument, and that's a reminder too how much this chapter has in common with the wall. There's a ton of factions, a lot of hostility, so much going on that it's impossible to think through all the possible ways that it could go. Well, that's part of what makes it all so interesting. Part of what makes it discussable from so many different angles is you just can't figure it all out. Stefan B noticed a couple of 
language takes here, a little sneaky moves by George, perhaps. Masande, a pun to Barristan, says, if this one may be so bold... <laughs> no, it's, he's the bold one. Wait, so there's this line that their tongue, their tongues moved like worms, uh, referring to dishonesty as a recurring theme of, of wormy lips is in that phrase as well. And wormy lips, like people like Joffrey and others, that's a somewhat of a recurring theme to people who are dishonest. A worm and tongue. This is not the first time we've seen a reference to worm tongue as in Grima worm tongue from Lord of the Rings, which, of course, we'll, we've said before, we'll say again, George, huge fan of Lord of the Rings, loves to stick those references in. So that's probably what he was doing there. Tree Girl says, dragons don't like rain. Wait till they see snow. Yeah. Fire and Blood gives us some hint on how they handle that. And often, even with a deep cut, the blood came before the pain. That's a line from Barristan and about the, the dawn breaking. But that's pretty much what happened with John, right? John got stabbed and he didn't feel it right away. Well, he saw the blood and there was the cold. Maybe that's what, uh, maybe there's a little nod to that going on here. A couple of you mentioned that there has been plague bodies used as siege warfare before in the real world. Most notably, perhaps the city of Kaffa in Crimea, which was besieged by the Mongols. This is cited by some as the reason the Black Death spread throughout Europe, This uh, that siege. I would prefer that this not have a similar impact. Uh, the Pale Mare, we don't really want that to spread like the equivalent of throughout Europe. Like, what, what would that mean? Throughout other free cities, all of Western Essos or something? Yikes, right? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Okay, let's go on. The next one is Daenerys 10. Daenerys X. Uh, Return to the Dithraki Sea, a.k.a. Berry Bad Dreams. Yeah, she eats some berries, has some dreams, but really the berries aren't nearly the only reason she has these dreams. Quaith is in this one, but I feel like before she comes on screen, she's off screen nodding, saying, see, I told you to go forward. You must go back. That's what I've been saying. I'm not sure she would have recommended those green berries, but otherwise, yeah. Danny herself even thinks of that line, to go forward, you must go back. It's almost like she realizes Maureen was not at all what she had in mind. It didn't work out the way she wanted to. Quaith was like, don't go to Maureen. So... Fair play. They all predicted this to some degree. And being away from it all, being away from these responsibilities, it's not what she planned. It's not what she wanted to do because she wants to do right by her people. Nevertheless, removing herself from that situation is giving her a chance to refocus and look at things differently. It's a spiritual journey in a lot of ways. A vision quest is another way to put it. That's a reasonable parallel term. Vision quests involve interacting with a so-called guardian spirit, which is usually an animal in a lot of Native Indian traditions, Native American Indians, that is. Drogon plays that role in a much more tangible form. He's no spirit, but she spares a spiritual aspect with him, or shares a spiritual aspect with him. She certainly is a dragon herself, after all, and he's certainly a guardian. In a lot of ways in this chapter, he seems to be keeping an eye on her. 
and certainly shows up when she's when he's needed, as certainly did in Daznak's bed, right? Not only is she returning to the Dothraki Sea, the place of her metaphorical rebirth after the death of her first husband and child, she's having memories of her brother, which is very much tied to her early life, her upbringing, a lot of the things that she believes today, that she wants today, the whole quest for the throne, pretty much imparted to her by her brother. So she's looking back, but she is looking ahead. She's addressing her past in order to move forward. It's kind of like addressing the trauma of your past. You need to address what happened in your childhood, like in therapy or something like that, in order to become a healthy adult. It's this, you can liken this process to things in the real world. And of course, this chapter is filled with locations that parallel locations that she seems to be headed towards. This chapter has a mini wall that she thinks of as like the one in Westeros that she's heard so much about but has yet to see. And more immediately, this hill she starts off at, she calls Dragonstone. The hill was a stony island in a sea of green. Yeah, that is perhaps a thought similar to those of her ancestors. Anar the Exile, Daenys the Dreamer, those other first wave of Targaryens that fled Valyria in advance of the Doom. At that point, though, Dragonstone was already occupied by other Valyrians. And it was those earlier unnamed Valyrians who gave the island the name Dragonstone based on how they shaped the stones using Valyrian sorcery. So uh, we don't know what the place was called before them. Interesting piece of trivia. What was the name of that island before the Valyrians? Good question. And though the Dothraki Sea was the place of her metaphorical rebirth, as we said, she was actually born on Dragonstone. Now, she doesn't really remember it. How could she? She left when she was so young, but it's still very much associated with her. It still follows her around, in a sense. It's part of her. The winds that gave her the nickname Stormborn were blowing so hard on the day of her birth that stone blocks were ripped from the parapets of this castle that was shaped by Valyrian magic. So even their magic wasn't enough to protect their own stone creations from the winds, powerful wind. So she doesn't actually know what Dragonstone looks like, even though she was born there, because she doesn't have memories of it. But still, she has these things, these ideas, these concepts, knowing where she came from. This stuff is raised in her first chapter. So we're going back to go forward. Literally, figuratively, supernaturally, uh, in real-world ways, in terms of you know addressing childhood trauma, there's just so many ways to look at that phrase and apply it. It's pretty cool. And also, this chapter in many ways reminds me of the various prison chapters. George has had a lot of those uh, per- cha- characters spending time in captivity, either house arrest or behind bars. This is sort of an open-ended prison. She, has, she can't really go where she wants. She can go where she wants, but it's all the same. This, it's maybe more like Davos's Spears of the Merling King chapter, except he couldn't actually go anywhere, but he was out in the open. His prison was nature. And there's hunger and thirst and deprivation in common as well. And they really affect the state of mind. And through that hunger and thirst and processing of important events in life, well, we see a lot of similarities. Now, of course, a major difference with her isolation and all these other characters is in her isolation, she has found new power. And I don't mean that by addressing her trauma, she's a stronger person. Although I do mean that also. I'm speaking on a more literal means, though. I'm talking about Drogon. She is a dragon rider now. (laughs) That is, again, real power. That's not like, I have found the power within myself. That's strong. 
But this is a living, breathing, fire-breathing monster that obeys some of her commands and probably more as we go forward. She learns how that all works. And this is something that's an important part of the chapter as well. Yes, we've gotten plenty of dragon lore. Things that have basically come from books within books, though. Meaning books within A Song of Ice and Fire tell us what dragons are like. This is our first real hands-on experience. Nitty-gritty, actual, where does she hold on? How does she steer? What's it feel like? Things like that. It's it's firsthand. It's really cool. And it's kind of neat that as important as dragons are, we're getting this for the first time just a little bit here at the end of the fifth book. And it's still called A Dance with Dragons, right? So this is uh, also maybe a little similar in some ways to those POVs that have had their first skin-changing experiences. It's a supernatural experience, but in different ways. The supernatural, in this case, is mostly the animal itself rather than the bond. Still, there's definitely something to this bond. We already touched on the Drogon maybe being like a guardian and spirit of some kind because he seems to be able to sense Danny's need. There's no, like, she's not in his head. She's not seeing through his eyes. It's definitely not the level of skin changing. So there's something going on, but it's not nearly as robust, shall we say. She thinks of how some instinct brings him home to his, you know, pseudo-dragonstone here. We've seen that with the real dragonstone. Somehow Sunfire the Golden, the dragon of Aegon II in the Dance of the Dragons, also returned to dragonstone but only when his master was there. And he had no way to know his master was there unless it was supernatural means. It's like the dragon was told, someone delivered a message to say, hey, yo, your master's on Dragonstone. Why don't you go fly to meet him? <laughs> no, he just went. It's written in fire and blood as a complete mystery. Like, how did he know? They don't, they don't have an answer. Neither do we. But we see just a hint of that same thing happening here. Another thing we see is a little more about actual dragons. Drogon's wounds smoked, Danny says, when he was hit by different blades and spears and crossbow bolts. John's wounds smoked. And John is a dragon of sorts. One of the crossbow bolts that pierced Drogon caught fire. <laughs> it just, you know, burned. John's wounds didn't go that far. I don't think John's got that kind of thing going on. But still, the smoking wounds is very interesting. That's an unusual description. She thinks how their first instinct is to attack. Unlike a horse, you touch it on one flank, it goes the opposite way. With a dragon, it goes that way, the way you tell it to go. Uh, And that tracks really well with what we've seen in histories. When two dragons fight, they go at it. When they really go at it, like to the death. Often both of them. Running away happens, but it's rare. Flying away, whatever. Danny has run away in a sense here too, but obviously not by choice. She didn't say, I'm getting the hell out of here. She was like, I'm getting on this dragon and then, oh, now I'm way out here. It's not exactly what I had in mind. Her first instinct too, Danny's, is to attack. Not like draw her sword and fight, but she faces down dangers head on. She doesn't, oh, I can't do that. I mean, think of how she faced actual fear smoke, that Smoke that's designed to make you afraid. That didn't even get her. She felt it, but she stood her ground. So that's pretty pretty strong. This is, this is a tough person. Really tough person. <laughs> I mean, she's out in nature. Nina says this is second, maybe only to brand three in this naturalistic aspect of this chapter, just being in nature and there's no one else to talk to and really interacting with the elements and with their just your own thoughts and things like that. 
And also, it's important to note that it's, it's, she's not a queen in this setting. She doesn't have people to follow her orders. She doesn't have anyone to elevate her, to worship her, or to tell her she's great, or to wait on her, any of these things. So she's on her own in that sense, too. All those huge list of titles, they're hers. She has them, but they don't mean anything in the wilderness, right? Um, an aspect of this chapter that relates to that is Varus explaining to Kevin what makes Aegon so great. All that stuff about him growing up, learning the skills of common folk and nobles both, and survival skills and court skills. We've compared their amazing quotes. We compared way back when Aegon was new. We compared Varus's quote about how he has done all these great things. He's learned to fish. He's learned to feel fear, all that. We compared that to what Danny's done quote, with Illyrio's quote. And it just, it just doesn't stack up. Yes, Aegon is impressive, but Danny just so much more. And this is a peculiarity of her character. Despite having roughed it more than Aegon has, like she went to the Red Waste, and this is her second trek to the Dothraki Sea. He's been through some things, but nothing like this. So it's interesting that despite going through those things, she never actually learned those skills because she went through those things as a leader that had followers who were still, you know, bringing her her food and drinks and things like that. She was certainly roughing it, but those menial tasks were still being handled by other people. Also, she's young. She never, you know, maybe she was older. She might've learned some of the things along the way. But when she births dragons, I mean, she's like a miracle worker and has dragons and people are... Then she's freeing slaves. I'll be, yeah, she's never going to bring, have to get herself a cup of wine again. Other people are just glad to, they're so gracious and, and full of gratitude for things she's done. I'm not criticizing her for not having learned how to, you know, make a hat here as, as one of the key examples. But the fact is she doesn't know how to do it. And she doesn't truly grasp what that means. She doesn't understand uh, all that. More on this. This is, this is a big, intense portion of, the, of our analysis here. But let's go off to the side for a minute to think about what she's perceiving and how this touches on one of the biggest themes of all, winter. When she was here the first time, the Dothraki Sea was notably different. So she's noticing every day, every single day, it gets a little different. Though she walked through a green kingdom, it was not the deep, rich green of summer. Even here, autumn made its presence felt and winter would not be far behind. The grass was paler than she remembered, a wan and sickly green on the verge of going yellow. After that would come brown. The grass was dying. It's just, ooh, that's a winter, of course, you know. And this is some, a, a far cry from the, the weird colors we saw before. I mean, weird in a good way. I'm just blue and purple grass and red grass. Like, it sounds really cool. It's just hard for me to imagine because I don't I've never see such a thing. You said red grass. I didn't say red grass. <laughs> Coming back to how well Danny handles all this, it's pretty impressive. It, that's why I brought up the fear smoke and all these other things. And, you know, she's no swordswoman, but she is brave as heck. She's as brave as anyone. She's got no skills for this. She's got no survival skills. That doesn't seem to rattle her. A part of that's her own naivete, thinking she can handle it anyway. So that kind of works for her. But she just takes it all in stride. She's like, yeah. She doesn't panic. She's like, this is bad. But she works through it rationally. She's like, okay, logically, what are my options here? She's still pretty clear-headed. And, and that's really interesting because she stays clear-headed even as she starts to hallucinate, which is a really interesting combination of events. Like, you're sort of seeing things that aren't there, but you're still speaking with logical arguments. And that I, I've, I'm fascinated by that. I think it's a really cool, really great way to write it. 
And consider how she handles adversity as compared to the same character we keep comparing her to, Varus's dragon, Aegon, quote, Targaryen. Do you think Daenerys, who handled all those things, I just described several things she's been through, how she's not getting frustrated here. What is one of the most important moments in Aegon's life that we've seen to date, in his, the few chapters we've seen him? Do you think Danny would have kicked over the Syvas table after losing? Like, is this really, like, this is someone who can handle so much adversity. Is she really going to get that upset at that? It's really telling that Aegon does get that upset <laughs> at a board game, right? I mean, is this guy really going to handle adversity in politics and war and relationships? I mean, I don't want someone who knocks over a board game to be a friend. <laughs> my king. <laughs> Great so... point. Great point. You've got maturity issues if you're not going to have a board game. I mean, he's 16, so okay. I, I, he's not permanently like that. He, give him some time. But no, he's not ready to be king <laughs> if he's knocking board games over because he lost. And he's doing it and no one's telling him not to do it. Yeah, no, and they're just like, okay. Okay, that's what kings do. <laughs> like, do they? Not Daenerys Targaryen. Well, she's a queen, so there you go. Cersei might, I guess, but Robert might too. Robert's a, had a temper. He, you know, hit people when he got frustrated. Yeah, I, so. You know, if Robert was playing a board game, I feel like he might be a good sport. Yeah, he probably doesn't care. If he was care. maybe fighting someone like in IRL, you know, <laughs> he might care if he lost like a melee. Yeah, I wonder how competitive Robert is about other things. You know, like yeah. he might be competitive because competitiveness is is a, is a thing. <laughs> but yeah, he might just be like, I don't care about Syvass. Like, I don't even know the rules. Wait, how does this one move again? <laughs> Stupid game. And so, and, and like we said, we have she has reason to be frustrated. She says what Nina calls one of the funniest lines in the whole series. And it is pretty funny, but it's not framed as comedy. She says, you're the blood of the dragon. You can make a hat. That's ridiculous, Danny. Those two things have nothing to do with each other. No, you're the blood of the dragon. You can find someone to make you a hat. <laughs> but not right now. Still, even though she has this weird, naive thought, she perseveres. She keeps trying, and she doesn't get frustrated. She has no skill at hat making, but she keeps trying, and she's process-oriented with it and doesn't let her emotions cloud her judgment or interfere with it, that process. It's really quite mature despite the naivete. I, I'm, again, fascinated by this character. Daenerys is so excellent. A lot of y'all cited this as one of her best chapters, if not her best chapter, if not one of the best chapters, period. And if you've noticed, I'm getting a little more excited than usual because I see a lot of that too. I'm, I'm with you guys. I don't like to name favorite chapters, but this one is really damn good. And of course, the reason she needs the hat it's because she has no hair. Her hair burned off. And that's why Egg, Aegon the Fifth, needed one. He's one of our... He's the person I think of first when I think of straw hats. And she thinks of them indirectly here in this quote with a little nod. Viserys told her tales of nights so poor that they had to sleep beneath the ancient hedges that grew along the byways of the Seven Kingdoms. Danny would have given much and more for a nice, thick, Hedge. <laughs> and what are you laughing at? Oh, well, you know, just, uh, you know, innuendo. <laughs> Aegon could make a hat from straw, probably. He learned how to make a hat. He learned how to make nets, so he could probably make a hat. And he was wearing a hat. He was wearing his own straw hat when we first met him, which was one of the many things that ties him to Egg. Remember, at that chapter, we were like the one with duck and egg. But his real experiences have all been supervised, chaperoned. And that's a crucial difference between him and Daenerys, among others. What Varys and Illyrio and Connington and the rest get wrong 
is that the skill to make the hat isn't what matters. It's the experience of living as a hat maker. Not the skill to do it, not the ability to do it, the life experience. Having the same job skills as someone doesn't give you perspective on their life. It gives you perspective on the task that they do, not their whole being, not what they have to go through as a human. To be fair, Aegon just marched up to his chaperone and said, hey, I'm ready to lead an attack on Storm's End. That's brave. Okay, so this kid is, again, praise of Daenerys is not criticism of Aegon. I am impressed by this kid, but he's just eclipsed badly by his far more impressive auntie. <laughs> Illyrio says it well. To Tyrion, back in Tyrion's second chapter of this book. The frightened child who sheltered in my manse died on the Dithraki Sea and was reborn in blood and fire. This dragon queen who wears her name is a true Targaryen. When I sent ships to bring her home, she turned toward Slaver's Bay. In a short span of days, she conquered Astapor, made young Kai bend the knee, and sacked Marine. I'm saying. But then she's added to that since, right? After taking his ships, she continued to follow her own path rather than the path laid out by Illyrio and Varys. Though at the moment, it's fair to say she's not even following her own path. It's more of Drogon's path, but she is a dragon. So the dragon is trying to help her get on the right path, you could say. But anyway, reborn on the Dothraki Sea, Illyrio says. Again, we make that point. This second trip might also be a rebirth, if not at least a reset. There's some similarity to Cersei here. A long walk, deprivation, being away from tower, power temporarily, but coming back to get a second chance. Uh, this experience is likely going to be another rebirth of sorts, not as supernatural as coming out of the fire with dragons. In that moment, she became the mother of dragons, but she still has to become the stallion who mounts the world. That's a prophecy. There's still supernatural elements to that. The stallion, I mean, the mare that mounts the world has to be accounted for. Anyway, that does seem to be the course of this plot line, which is interesting. She's following the streams towards the Skahazadon, but really she needs to go farther back. She thinks to go forward, I must go back. But she hasn't gone back far enough yet. <laughs> she needs to probably go all the way to Vase Dothrak to be forced into the Dash Kaleen, or almost, so then she can unite the Kalasars. I mean, how is she going to unite the Kalasars if she's not amongst them? Are they going to come to her? Maybe, but probably not. I mean, especially not now that she's already out there. So I think even though she knows her responsibilities are pressing, her destiny is even more important than that. Yes, the people of Marine need her. That's important. It's super important. The people of the world need her. All the cities of the world need her, quite possibly. That is an argument that could be made. And it's a compelling one, I think. I'm not 100% sold on it, but I... I have a hard time rejecting it. <laughs> so I think if I really were to sit down and think, is that true? I'd be like, yeah, probably. Anyway, good question for later. More of being a dragon. Like she has this thought on Drogon's back, she felt whole. And Joe writes, of course she does. This is just one of the many pieces of evidence we'll get throughout this chapter that this and other parts of being a Targaryen just feel right. When she does these things that are part of her nature, her subconscious tells her so. That yes, this is the right path. This is good. You're on the right track now. Be what you are. And this may pile up as she goes and she may get better at listening to these, I hesitate to call them internal voices because that gets us into hearing voices, which she has done, uh, you know, probably from Quaith and, and in this chapter too. We're building up to that. The power of Drogon, we talk about how he is empowering. It's a different kind of power than political power, than military power even. This is a, a new type of power that we're going to discuss here, um, but it's one familiar to us in real life. It's the power of 
going from sitting in a chair, saving other people, denied the basic freedom to just do what she wants with her life uh, because of all these responsibilities. In other words, but to, to this, to being ripped away from that, to simple physical pleasures, to, f- to flight, the ultimate unparalleled physical experience available to almost nobody, right? She doesn't explicitly compare flying to sex, but if you put a gun to her head and say, okay, Danny, you can only have one or the other for the rest of your life, she might choose flying. She really might. <laughs> I don't know. But it says a lot that she would have to think about it, you know, I think. So that's, that's really interesting. The dragon lords of old Valyria had controlled their mounts with binding spells and sorcerous horns. Daenerys made do with a word and a whip. Mostly, it's a little of some, little column A, column B, meaning sometimes Drogon's in charge and sometimes Daenerys is in charge. That's something that she thinks about in this chapter. There, she's flown on him several times off page in between this chapter and leaving Daznak's pit. And she notes that sometimes he goes where she wants she won't, he won't go to Marine, uh, but sometimes he just gets it in his head to go somewhere and she can't do anything about it. It's never Marine, clearly, but he just goes places and then he knows how to get back to where he's going. And maybe over time, she'll learn to master him entirely. But right now, he's got a will of his own and that's big in play here. And Joe writes, don't think that that mention of a horn escapes our notice, not with Victorian coming closer. That horn is, well, it's, it's near, right? Uh, we don't know what it's going to do. We don't know if it's going to affect Drogon this far out. Joe suggests maybe Victorian is just a plot device in part to get Dragonbinder into Danny's hands. Maybe she needs to have the horn for some reason. Maybe the horn needs to be destroyed. The horn's a big question. Let's put it that way. We'll have a lot more to say on the horn when we do the Victorian Winds of Winter chapter. And we've had a lot to say on the horn in our Hellhorn episode from years ago. So Danny leaves these thoughts for now. Uh, Joe writes, another thing she has in common with Cersei is the temptation to look behind her as she's walking and to not focus on what's ahead of her. Cersei is like, don't look. Just focus on what's in front of you. Get to the Red Keep. Don't look side to side. Don't look back. Yeah, there's a little bit of Danny in there. I didn't notice that at the time, but seeing Danny in this scene makes us think back on the recent Cersei scenes, and, and uh, there's some parallels for sure. Here's where that naivete comes in, though. Uh, Danny's inexperience in politics still rears its head every once in a while, and she thinks to herself, surely everything will be settled now. The hostage situation's probably fine. All that, that is, this is very wrong. (laughs) She's not even processing hardly at all what a big deal it is that she's not there and how people react and freak out. Like she doesn't really process that they might be thinking she's dead. It doesn't occur to her that, wow, they might think I'm dead. And if she thought of that, that would really stress her out because it's really stressing Marine out, this not knowing. There's nothing she can do about that because we've already seen that Drogon won't take her where she wants to go. But I guess it's a, an ignorance is bliss situation for her here because she doesn't need the additional stress of that when she can't do anything about it. So hopefully she just gets back before things are too screwed up. Okay, here's where I am going to get slightly personal uh, with an anecdote about hallucinating because I really, really want to make the case that what Danny experiences here is not insanity. It's not madness. It's not a foreshadowing of madness. That doesn't mean she won't go mad. I don't really think she will. I mean, I think she'll get mad, (laughs) but not go mad. You know what I mean? There's a difference there. For one thing, she speaks very rationally to her visions. And that's part of being, when you, when you maintain rationality and logical arguments and can uh, think along logical lines, 
It says a lot, but there's a lot more than that. I mentioned vision quests. Uh, vision quests involve fasting and starvation and not drinking water. Baylor the Blessed fasted, had visions. Real Christian priests and monks and, and Jews and name your religion. Everyone fasts and it has an impact. All, they all have these traditions. Dead religions, living religions, fasting gets you closer to God. That's a common belief. And that's part of this here. Now, my personal experience, this is what I'm talking about. When I was in college at Florida State University, when I was about 21, so older than Daenerys, but still pretty young, some friends of mine were like, let's go skiing. So what did we do? Like goofy, high energy, 20-somethings, we were like, Let's drive to North Carolina, ski, and drive back. Notice in that plan, there's no sleeping involved. And that was our goal, to go there and ski and then drive back without sleeping. It's about seven or eight hours to North Carolina, maybe nine to where, from where we were. We went to Ski Beach, a mountain in North Carolina from Tallahassee, Florida. We did our skiing. By the end, it was time to drive back. We were too poor to have hotel rooms. So we were like, we were, we were, we couldn't change our plan. <laughs> like, okay, we're locked into this plan, even if, it, even if it wasn't so smart. So we're driving home. No drugs are involved. I certainly didn't drink because that would have really knocked me out. We're drinking lots of soda. So I'm just high on caffeine as much as possible. We're driving back. Everyone else in the car is asleep. At one point I'm driving and I hear my friend go, call my name. He says my name. I'm like, what? And he says it again louder. And I'm like, what? I look in the rearview mirror. He is asleep. He wasn't messing with me. He was asleep. I heard him talking. He was not talking. Again, no drugs. I'm a grounded guy. I didn't believe in Santa Claus when I was four. So that gives you an idea of, of where my mind goes. And so I'm like, whoa, what was that? Uh, he, does, he was not talking to me, but I distinctly heard his voice multiple times. It was almost a conversation. So I'm like, all right, maybe, I'm like, maybe I shouldn't be driving. What was that? I've never had anything like that happen to me. About two minutes more go by, a tennis ball rolls by my foot. I'm like, oh, I better get that. It might interfere with the brakes. I'm like trying to get it. I'm like reaching. I'm looking. I'm glancing at it as I'm driving. I'm like, where is that tennis ball? Let me grab that. There was no tennis ball. There's no tennis ball whatsoever. I didn't have a tennis ball in that car. I hallucinated a tennis ball. There was no tennis ball. Not at all. The point being, hunger, deprivation, lack of sleep, they make you see things. They do. And Danny's in far worse shape than I was. She way less food, way less sleep, way less water. At least I was getting hydrated. And I didn't eat any poisonous green berries. Also, I'm not some child of prophecy who has blood of the dragon and all this other stuff going on. So there is a supernatural element here. I'm just saying it's probably muted in terms of just real world stuff. It's like the, uh, the Jamie stump dream. Yeah, where would stump? Supernatural. But he also had a fever and drank dream wine. Triple threat, right? George loves to do that. Multiple reasons, not one. These things add up to create a collage rather than one factor leads to one answer. So when Danny sees Quaith and Viserys and these other things in the stars, that's why I don't jump to insanity. It's, it's a big leap to that because it's, it, she should be seeing visions. That's what happens. Maybe not these specific ones. Okay, so I'm positive she's not talking to her brother. Viserys is dead. That's not Viserys' spirit. 
And I'm positive she's not talking to the darn grass. <laughs> but Quaith, that might really be Quaith. Here's the quote. Her mask is made of starlight. Remember who you are, Daenerys, the stars whispered in a woman's voice. The dragons know. Do you? So that might really be Quaith. It might be her subconscious. It's We've already discussed this in the past that getting into someone's mind with glass candles to feed them visions uh, one way or the other seems to be easier when that person is in a certain state of mind. And Daenerys is in that state of mind. She's hungry and tired and all that. So, and poisoned. So maybe that has given Quaith an opening to speak to her again. Maybe Quaith has been waiting for an opportunity like this. She's like, I got to get Danny back on track. She's just wrong again. She's just sitting in Marine and she needs to not do that. So what Nina writes here is, the dragons know who she is, but, but Danny doesn't. This is what she has to spend this chapter figuring out. She thinks she's Queen of Marine, tied to the city in his dar, but that's not who she is. The dragons know this. Drogon won't take her there because she doesn't belong there. Viserion and Rhaegal kill slavers and destroy pyramids symbolically because that's what she should be doing. This is what Danny should be doing herself. She should be leading them towards that. Breaking chains and mother of dragons. Fully embracing that. That's who she is. She's a liberator and a hero. She's not a politician. So this chapter is so much the best. That's why I make term, use terms like vision quest and, and fasting and, and using religious concepts and psychological concepts like addressing your own traumas and, and understanding yourself, self-identity. Dragons plant no trees, right? Remember, remember that. Remember who you are, what you were made to be, fire and blood, and not cautious and patient. It would be bad if she had a child. There's an important point here about her uh, maybe having a miscarriage. A lot of y'all think that's what happens in this scene. I, I tend to agree. And it's really important that she doesn't have a child. She's a mother of dragons. If she has a child with his dar, now some of you are like, that it's probably Dario's kid if she does have a kid, but that doesn't matter. It would have been raised as his dar's kid. They would have all been like, this is the, the, the child of his dar. No one would have. But talk about being more tied to Marine. Danny has, an, has a child of her own body. How's that going to make her bring her closer to, to King's Landing or to Westeros? It's not. It's going to do the opposite. She's not going to want to leave her kid. And that kid is now set to inherit the throne. But she's, she wouldn't want to stick around and protect him. Like Cersei doesn't want to abandon Tommen to his enemies. It's the same kind of thing. Marine's a cesspool. Marine's full of murderous types. She can't leave an infant behind with his dar of the tepid kisses, as she calls him in this chapter. Hell no. That kid wouldn't be safe. Daenerys knows better. Destiny-wise, having a miscarriage here, if that's indeed what happened, is in line with all that. She's a dragon. And she's the right one to have dragons. This is another really great take from Nina here. When she thinks about Viserys and has this conversation with his ghost, Viserys is petty. He's like jealous. He says, I should have been the one to have a dragons. I would have shown the world what it means to be a dragon. And Nina's suggestion is that's why Daenerys has the dragons. <laughs> because she wouldn't do that. All these other dragon riders, all the others, Aegon the Fourth. Maybe even Aegon the Fifth, but definitely Ares, so much Magor, all these other, not Magor, but um, Arian, Brightflame, all these other Targaryen kings after the death of the dragons who tried to bring the dragons back. They all were going to, for the most part, use the dragons to destroy good things. Danny is special because 
she can be a dragon using the destructive power of blood and fire on things that deserve it, on things that need to be destroyed. Not using it as a weapons of war, not using it to subjugate innocent people, but to wipe out slavery, right? That's just a much better use of dragons. And if you think about, if you boil it down to that, if there was some godlike being, some benevolent godlike being that was in charge of who got the dragons, you would see why they chose Daenerys and not Viserys and not any of these others. Uh, and at the end of the chapter, there's more. Joe notes, too, that she goes and stands by Drogon. She's standing there next to him, covered in blood. He's all blackened and bloody, too, and there's fire. Talk about symbolizing what she is. She feels guilty over a lot of things, too. Guilt is a big part of this chapter. She's processing things. She has her thoughts and, and conversations with her past. She can't remember Hosea's name, which is really sad. And she was determined to not do that. But again, I don't really blame her for this. This is... I mean, she's seeing things. She's hallucinating. She doesn't have food. Like, forgetting someone's name... Eh, I, I don't take this as lack of... Of, uh, of her losing compassion, of her changing into something crueler. Something more violent? Yeah. But crueler, no. She's still going to, I think, be a violent person that wants to do violence in the name of good. Like a lot of characters we've seen. Like Ned Stark. Ned Stark is a violent man when he has to be, but he, he tends to do it in the name of good. We'll see about Daenerys. It may not be so simple with her, but we know the kind of person she is now. If she changes, she changes. But this is not a change into evil. This is not a change into darkness. This is a change into destructiveness. But destructiveness isn't evil necessarily. It's who you aim that destructiveness at. Okay, here, let's, let's talk about the miscarriage, miscarriage a little more. Nina's 100% sure that's what it is. And it makes sense. She has had plenty of sex with Dario and his dar. Uh, of course, that's not a guarantee. Um, but she notes that it's heavier bleeding, which is, right, that's a sign that something else is going on here it's thematically significant because it's, if, if this is like a, a death of a child that was growing within her, then it symbolizes that she cannot be that to Marine. She cannot be a mother. She has to be a dragon. She's the mother of dragons, not a mother and a dragon. There's this quote, when the seas go dry and the mountains blow and the wind like leaves, that was from Mary Mazdur and said, that's what will happen. That's what will need to happen before your womb quickens again. Arguably, that has happened. You would say, well, how, how so? Well, the seas are going dry, not the watery seas, but the Dothraki Sea is going dry here. It's drying up from winter. You very clearly see that. The, the grass is turning brown. That's dried up. It's losing its moisture. The mountains blowing in the wind like leaves? What's that all about? Well, the peace treaty was just referred to as being blowing in the wind like leaves, and the pyramids are crumbling because of the dragons destroying some of them. So maybe that's a stretch, but we do at least have something we can point to to push back against the notion that Danny shouldn't be able to get pregnant. But I believe what she said, then you will bear a living child. So this wasn't necessarily even referred to by Mary. This was now, she didn't bear a living child. So anyway, little semantics that you got to get into with some of these prophecies. And that's what makes them so tricky and, and to follow in the first place. A little history on Dragonstone. It was the last toehold of House Targaryen in Westeros and the first. It was the refuge of the, Last Targaryens and first spot for the first Targaryens, you'd say. Dragonstone was also the birthplace of the Targaryens after they fled Valyria ahead of the Doom. And it was from Dragonstone that Aegon the Conqueror and his sisters launched the Targaryen Conquest. So this is really just the launching pad for so many historic events in Targaryen history. 
it's made a lot of sense that Daenerys would first go there when she returns to Westeros. It's certainly what the TV gave us. It's certainly what Melisandre probably was seeing when she saw Stannis, when she thought it was Stannis, because she's like, born on Dragonstone. I was like, Stannis wasn't born on Dragonstone. Danny was. Another, another hint that Skahaz is the poisoner. When Danny's in the ruined village, Daenerys thinks about the locusts and concludes that someone must have poisoned them. And she thinks about his dar. And she just she doesn't get it. She's like, why would his dar kill me? She it doesn't understand what 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 his aim would be, why that would be good for him. And we had some of the same same thoughts. But she can't figure out who else it would be. She can't arrive on a name that makes a lot of sense. Just as she is having that thought of who it could be and not arriving at an answer. She hears a wolf howling in the distance. And we just saw Skahaz wearing a wolf's head mask in the last chapter. Aha! And the ants. This is another aspect of her still being human. She gets bitten by ants. She's on the other side of the wall. She wonders how they could have climbed like that. We're going to wonder how the others get across the wall too. We've been wondering about that too. Um, But she's unaware of things like yeah, free folk can actually climb that thing. It's amazing. It's impressive. But people can do incredible things. So yeah, strength is a matter of perspective. What's impressive to some might not be impressive to others. There's historical examples of dragons being brought down by great numbers. For example, Mushrooms uh, has a line, a thousand rats can bring down a bear. And that's what happened with, say, the dragon Cyrax. And a lot of the dragons in the dragon pit that we mentioned. They were swarmed by lots of angry religious folk, and even the dragons could stand against that. There were just too many of them. Really good uh, point here by Oberyn19 from our Flick channel. Some of this stuff here, we've made parallels to other characters. One that I never thought of that sounds really good once I hear it is Nettles and Sheepstealer. Uh, Nettles would have had an adjustment period in the Vale. That's where she flew off to live after the Dance of the Dragons and kind of escaped the world, so to speak. But she eventually encountered the tribe that would become known as the Burned Men. And that's why they burn a part of themselves off. It's kind of like showing their devotion to this fire queen of theirs. And Nettles is, is a micro Danny in that sense. Uh, she would have had to get used to this new environment, figure out how to live in the wilderness. But eventually, her dragon and that real power gained her new followers. And that might be what we're seeing here with the Dothraki, because again, I think most of us expect the Dothraki to end up following her after all this. There may be some, she may need to kill a few of them first. In fact, she almost certainly will, especially the ones that she has wanted to kill for a while, because they're going to want to return the favor, if not force her into the Dosh Kaleen. Yeah, there'll be some, there'll be some more dragon fire probably. Remember, too, the line from Daenerys' old vision of uh, a line of crones emerging from a, a lake to, to kneel at her feet. Those were probably the Dosh Kaleen. We haven't seen that happen yet. Why would they be in a lake? Well, because they flee to the lake because everything's on fire. That might not be why, but it certainly works for me as a theory. Khaleesi Tarverian says, this chapter totally connects to the star tarot card. Naked woman wandering the woods, naked falling a stream with stars watching over her while she self-actualizes her shadow. <laughs> yeah, Drogon is totally a shadow. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I don't know much about um, tarot, but this seems to totally nail it, right? The major arcana lays out the hero's journey and Carl Jung used them as base points for his archetypes. Okay, yeah. Got into a chat, in the chat, I suppose, about George and I would guess that he's had some tarot readings. 
based on the company that he keeps. Yeah, why not? Most yeah. people, I think, have honestly had one. Yeah, it's um, fun. But anyway, so I would guess he's experienced that. But speaking to hallucinations, I would be positive that he has also experienced that. Yeah. Yeah, probably. For a number of reasons, <laughs> us in the chat, we're all quite positive, but that's also how you can write it so well. Uh, Archmaster Rennie points out Danny loses the whip at one point, and, well, it might be fitting, because a dragon is no slave. A Drogon is no slave, either. Really rich chapter. I'm sure there's some things that we could have talked about that we didn't, but as always, got to stop somewhere. We can't go all the way through every single rabbit hole. That's what future episodes are for. So as always, if you feel like we didn't cover something as thoroughly as you wanted to, just speak up. There's a decent chance we already have in the past or will in the future, and it helps us decide what to do next. But we have one more chapter. Epilogue, Return of the Spider, a.k.a. the one that manages to talk about every single plot line. With regards to prologues and epilogues, in the Game of Thrones, there's the others. In the Clash of Kings, there's the Comet and Melisandre. In the Storm of Swords, the others again. Then Lady Stoneheart at the, in the epilogue. Then in A Feast for Crows, the conversation starts with dragons, but ends with an actual faceless man. There's no epilogue in A Feast for Crows, but the final chapter comes back to that plot line. Good thing it's not an epilogue, because it's a Sam chapter, and we don't want Sam getting killed. The prologue in this book, of course, is Veramir, so skin changing and whites, plenty of more magic, but... This is perhaps the most unique because it's not only the most well-known character ahead of time. We didn't certainly didn't know Waymar before. We didn't know Crescent before. Um, we barely knew Veramir and we didn't like him. Chet, we barely knew him. So Kevin, though, he's a fairly known commodity. And this epilogue la lacks any supernatural element or twist. It, I mean, it has supernatural elements. Robert Strong is there. There's thoughts of Valyrians and dragons and Dragonstone being built by sorcery, but it's all peripheral stuff uh, for the most part. The reveal, the big, oh my God, moment in this chapter, the death is not supernatural. This book does so much work outside the areas that have been most constantly featured. This chapter in part recaps and reminds us of a huge number of the things that are going on in a way that doesn't really feel like a recap. And that's really important because like I said at the very beginning of this episode, we've spent so much of this book away from the areas that are, or that had been previously the most important. Since we've been away a bit, we need to get back into that. In terms of sheer volume, this chapter probably has the most total rabbit holes, which is really saying something, but that's, of course, it's a direct effect of it trying to touch on and, and do brief recapping of so many different plot lines. And because there's so many ways to approach this chapter, because there's so many rabbit holes, I recommend checking out our episode from five years ago on this one. I moved it around, or will have by the time this is uh, posted. Our first ever Aziz versus chapter episode was five years ago. I accidentally said last, last episode, last week, that it was a Patreon episode. It was a Patreon episode. It is no longer one. I had forgotten that we had made a regular release of it. There was only four Aziz first chapter episodes. These are scripted single chapter coverages. That's mostly been overtaken by this series. So we kind of stopped doing those. But they were different because they were scripted. And then, you know, these are live streams and then edited for podcast form. So two of those are Patreon only. Um, two of them are not, including this one. So I recommend going into that one because I tried pretty hard to not overlap too much what we covered in that one with this one. Uh, so we're going to say a lot in this one. We say a lot in that one. And not too much of it is the same. Check that out too. This scene 
is familiar enough in its, in its own way because small council scenes, we've seen lots of those. They make sense. Of course, the, the people ruling have to get together to discuss the affairs of the realm. But we've gone without a character uh, as a POV that could show us that. Right? It, for a long time, it was Ned. Then it was Tyrion. We had some Sansa here and there, but mostly still Tyrion. And then Cersei was the one for A Feast for Crows showing us what's going on in councils. But Cersei was removed from her position. She was tossed in, in prison. So she's not exactly privy to what's going on at the council, let alone actually being at the council. So Kevin comes on to do that for us. So we've never really been away from the small council chambers this long before. They've featured in every book almost right away. It's like Ned 3, I think, that he gets to King's Landing, maybe 4. And he goes right to council. Remember, like he doesn't, he barely even like has a meal. So it, it's, it starts right away. So it's really important for us to know what the Iron Throne is up to. What's the Iron Throne doing, reacting to all these things? So much has happened. What are they doing? And it starts right away with one of these developing plot lines. I am no traitor, the Knight of Griffin's Roost declared. The power of reread is strong here. The power of knowing your Song of Ice and Fire history is strong here too. Robert is strong here too. Ah. Much of Kevin's POV chapter concerns repeating the past. Historical events re-presented in strange new ways, writes Nina. And this connection is made blatant at the opening of the chapter when Red Ronnet Connington vows to bring the small council the heads of John Connington and his Aegon. The divide of almost two decades suddenly narrows here again as an energetic young commander with royal Targaryen blood in his veins down in the Stormlands comes to make a claim for the throne. But we have a back then in front of Ares, we had a Connington saying, I'm no traitor, right before he's exiled <laughs> in disgrace. And here we have a Connington making the same case. He's like, hey, I'm not a traitor. What the heck? So the roles are kind of reversed. We have a Targaryen as the invader, whereas the usurper is a Baratheon. Uh, in the first time, now we have, or whereas the sitting king is the Baratheon, whereas 20 years ago, it was a Targaryen king and a Baratheon usurper. So honestly, this is the kind of stuff I did not catch on my earlier reads because, well, like I said, you have to really know your Song of Advice and Fire history well. And even if you do, you might miss some of these things. But this is a real a scene that is full of history repeating itself. Now, we don't have a lot of sympathy for Red Ron at Connington because we've seen this guy before. He's one of Brienne's suitors. He was a real ass to her. Jamie smashed him in the mouth that one time. So, you know, fair play. He got a little pushback for that. But our feelings aside, if we're trying to put ourselves in his shoes, it's no fun to be him right now. His long-lost cousin, John, just arrives out of nowhere, takes his castle, takes his family hostage. Yeah, he's suspected of being in league with them. Like, this guy took my castle and my family, yet you think I'm with him? That's fair. That's great, you know? So it's an important frame of mind to have for this chapter because you don't feel bad for him, probably, because he's not a good person. You don't like, I don't have room for sympathy for that guy. But that's a recurring exercise that comes in A Song of Ice and Fire. Putting yourself in other characters' shoes. Not to necessarily show empathy for them. Sometimes, absolutely. But sometimes it's just in order to like follow their thought process and kind of see where they're at. Put yourself in their shoes to understand what they're going to do next. Yeah, in order to understand why the various characters react and speak and plan and plot the way they do in this chapter and others do that, we have to put ourselves in their mind and understand their motivations in the first place. And it gets really complicated in chapters like this because there's so many. 
characters with so many goals and interests and worries and anxieties and all that. And so many factions and characters within these factions, again, like Jon Snow, like Meereen, you just cannot figure all this out. You can outline the things that make it complex, but figuring out what's going to happen next is, that's why it's taken George a while too, because he's probably parsing all this out or has, and is like, yeah, there are a lot of options here. I wonder if I've picked the best one, you know? Imagine how many options she has when you mix in his imagination. But that complexity is also the root of why we can cover this chapter five years later and do it really differently, not be repetitive, not overlap our previous takes much or at all, because it's so big and complex and interesting and fun. Some of Kevin's thoughts are brief, like when he considers how cold it is and how that must mean the wall too is really cold. As Picel notes, Red Ronnet's promise sounds an awful lot like his Uncle John's own promise to bring Ares the head of Robert Baratheon during his anonymous rebellion. Kevin even notes that he can imagine Ares sitting on the Iron Throne during the scene because he's feeling some of, of these echoes of the past as well. So this chapter is a lot of that. Two lines, one line, you're in a rabbit hole. <laughs> it's just like that. You could go, you could think about that one line and where it takes you for hours. We could write episodes on those things. We have. Just like the yellow grass, just like the snowflakes falling in the Riverlands and up north, we have winter here. Pretty ominous to see winter at King's Landing, a place we've been focused on. It's the number one location in the series in terms of frequency, uh, but it's always been pretty warm there, right? The weather is never, other than rain, maybe humidity, smells. That's what we have heard about King's Landing, but snow, that's, that's different. And we really don't know what that's going to mean. Just like everything else, the snow takes over from a visual perspective by covering everything, taking all the color away, making everything white. The Red Keep is no different there. Now, Kevin is just like us, overwhelmed with everything happening here. There's so many possibilities. There's people talking about dangers from over the sea. Kevin actually pays more attention to things like Daenerys and Aegon and the dragons than even Tywin did. Tywin was dismissive of that. It almost makes sense, though. Yeah, you got to pay attention to what's happening overseas, but the things that are pressing them up close are so pressing that I kind of get why they don't have much time to think about the Queen of Marine, who's so far away. And that's why Aegon, now they must deal with him because he actually has landed on the shores. But even that's being delayed. Even that, Mace is like, first trial, then I'll go deal with them. <laughs> even these things get... Even really high priority items get pushed down the priority tree a bit because there's even higher priority items. And look at just the way the scene is set up. Uh, there's the winter chill, but there's the chill of the relationships here. Lannister spearmen in crimson cloaks and lion-crested half-helms stood along the west wall of the throne room. Tyrell guards in green cloaks faced them from the opposite wall. The chill in the throne room was palpable. It just seems like war could break out. They're not going to start fighting in the throne room here, but it's impressed on us that those two sides just don't like each other and that it's only a matter of time, perhaps. And as Joe writes, the reason so many of these moves have to wait, why I have to wait even to handle invaders, why even that is not the top priority is because King's Landing is in a bit of purgatory. 
Uh, the trials. Every the trials have to be resolved first. It's, it's exactly what the High Sparrow wants. The High Sparrow's power is just continues to rise as everyone's waiting on him, on the results of his findings, of the thing that he's leading here. Just goes to show how quickly he uh, not only gained but cemented some power. Maybe he'll lose it all early in the winds of winter. I don't expect him to hang on to it forever. But man, it's it's a force we reckon with right now. Kevin also thinks. The Iron Throne. He looks at the Iron Throne and uh, he describes it as a great black beast hidden in shadow, which makes makes us think of Drogon a bit, but all, even more so, perhaps the beast of Varys, the spider, who is hiding in the shadows upstairs, killing Kevin in a matter of minutes. And if maybe this is symbolism for Varys being pushing a black fire claimant because it's a great black beast hidden in shadow. But yeah, so it kind of works on a couple of levels there. The, the, yeah, Mace Tyrell brings in his own hand throne, which according to, I think it was Archmaester Rennie pointed out that then in the um, iBooks edition, Mace had that, th- that th- hand chair made when Renly was crowned because he was expecting to be hand to Renly. So yeah, because a couple of you were like, when did he have this chair made? It was like the same day he was promoted. Did he really already have the chair? Yeah, he did already have the chair because he thought he was getting promoted, you know, like a year ago. <laughs> Still, he kept the chair around and had it on hand. Like, he brought it with him. <laughs> like, he didn't have it made in King's Landing. <laughs> Mace is telling Ronit Conning, shut up, man. We're going to put you to the test. You'll get your chance to prove your loyalty. We're going to ride out. He's being pompous and arrogant. He's like, don't, you know, like, I'm going to handle all this. I will beat them. They're nothing. I'm Mace Tyrell. Fear me. And they're nothing. Don't fear them. <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's a real blowhard, isn't he? I used that term before. It really fits him well. So, but this is what Connington wants. Connington, he's, Mace is doing what Connington wants him to do. He's like, yes, we're going to win the trial. And then we're going to, I'm going to take my armies down there and beat those, those adventurers. Get them in the open field and then make sure everyone knows it. That's what Connington wants. He's like, yeah, let's get them in the open field, beat them and then spread the word that we beat them. Let everyone know that we just beat the current regime in an open field battle, and then we recruit. We say, all y'all on the fence, side with the winners. Everyone wants to be on the winner's side, and if they may win a big battle and take Storm's End, which apparently they've already done, then they can say things like, look how great our king is compared to your boy king. Psst, he's a bastard. Never mind that ours probably is too. And now on top of that, we've beaten your army and our boy king led the army while yours is playing with kittens. Plus, they could also say, yo, Mace Tyrell, do you really want to be on that guy's side? That guy's making all the decisions. Maybe you should be on the other side. Is that really the winning side? Kevin has this moment where he's just like getting a little fed up with Mace. He's like, geez, I kind of feel, I kind of get it. The more I give him, the more he wants. Kevin Lannister was beginning to understand why Cersei had grown so resentful of the Tyrells. There's a little bit of sarcasm here. I don't think he's like coming around to being like, I guess Cersei was right after all. It's not that, he's not, he's not going that far with it. Uh, this is like rueful sarcasm. And this is great writing because it's consistent with how the type of sarcasm that permeates the entire Lannister family that we've seen. Kevin's got his sarcasm. Jamie. Cersei, Tywin had it. Obviously, Tyrion has it. So yeah, they're all sarcastic, and, and except for like Lancel. Kevin now thinks on another point that surely stays in the back of his mind. Every minute of the day, 
Mace has two armies. He has none. So that's part of what's going on. That's part of why he can't push back too much on Mace because he's definitely a little worried about that. It's similar to John with Stannis. He, John has to give Stannis some of the things Stannis wants because Stannis has way more swords. Now, that said, one of these two armies is actually Randall Tarley's army, not Mace Tyrell's army. Mace is just kind of counting it as his because that's what he does. Randall's his bannerman. But we've been saying for quite a while that Randall Tarley is a pretty big candidate for switching sides if he hasn't already uh, under the radar done so and is just pretending to still be on the uh, Tyrell Lannister side. So one of those two armies might, in fact, attack the other one from behind or something like that. Maystar also says there's no way they're going to take Storm's End. No way. They couldn't do that. They do, as we see in the Winds of Winter, which is going to make Mace feel, I don't know what he's going to feel, but how does a really arrogant guy feel about someone taking Storm's End when he wasn't able to take Storm's End? He'll, he'll probably just find a way to make an excuse in his mind. He's good at that. Mace disparages badly. The Golden Company, Aegon, John Connington, Randall Tarley's happy with that. Randall is one of the things we go over in detail is just how suspicious Randall Tarley's comments are in our episode from five years ago on this chapter. Uh, and th- this time I'd, li- I'd like to focus more on Kevin's takes here and how he's probably more accurate. In fact, he definitely is more accurate because we've seen John Connington. Kevin thinks a fighter even in his youth and now older, harder, more seasoned, more dangerous. Mace is more thinking about him as a young man. Like, ah, oh, he never won any victories back then. He couldn't possibly have changed in 20 years. <laughs> this is a really bad take. So Kevin is, is right to be, no, we should take this more seriously. But also Kevin thinks back to the bodies, the dead bodies of Rhaenys and Aegon, and how he, he's thinking to himself, well, actually, the way that those bodies were displayed, you couldn't tell who that kid was. So Kevin has to admit the possibility that Aegon is really who they say he is. And that is doing a lot of work for the rest of the realm in terms of perception. Every one of us wonders how the realm is going to react to Aegon. And I think most of us think it's going to be positive because of how he's presented. Heroic, good-looking, way better by comparison to the current rulers, all that. So Kevin sort of coming around and thinking, yeah, this kid, this and that, like thinking it through. This is what a lot of other people are going to be thinking. They're not all going to have the same details Kevin has, but some of them will have different details. And that takes Kevin's mind elsewhere. He's thinking about Daenerys. Um, this, the rumors are now too strong. Pycelle backs it up. People aren't denying it anymore. They're still saying, oh, we don't need to worry about that. But they're no longer questioning the truth of Daenerys, Stormborn, and Three Dragons. De- Kevin thinks to himself, a second Targaryen and one whose blood no man can question Daenerys Stormborn. Yeah. So they're accepting it. They don't know what to do about it. Kevin thinks to himself, yeah, if that's the blood of the egg on the conqueror and she's already conquering things, is she really going to be content with just one conquest? She's acclaimed to this throne. We should definitely be worried. And he's right too. However, he has a thought that I would criticize here. He thinks he's worried what happens if Aegon and Danny join forces. He's, it's a rational uh, worry, but if you think it through, eh, wouldn't they have already teamed up if they were going to? What he should be perhaps thinking is maybe if we don't crush one of them so that the others can't join together, maybe he should be thinking of how to split them apart, how to divide them. But that may just work itself out and Kevin won't be around for it anyway. The point of a lot of this in the council setting is for Kevin to say, look, we have to take this seriously. 
yeah, I know maybe John Cunnington is weak. Maybe there's exaggerations, but we still have to take it seriously. We still have to fight them. We still have to win. We still have to prove ourselves. Yeah. May still says, okay, fine. We'll do that. But still, after the trial. Trial first. Definitely one of the things Mace does that's not dumb is that he's aware that even though, yeah, Marjorie is innocent. We know it. We know within, you know, from reading that she's innocent. It doesn't mean the High Sparrow is going to rule that way. Yeah, he'd be dumb not to because of those two armies sitting outside. But that's why Mace makes sure those two armies are sitting outside. He's, it is a threat. It's like, you find my daughter guilty, face the consequences. It's not subtle, but it's not stupid either. Or maybe it's not, maybe it wasn't his idea. <laughs> maybe someone else gave him that idea, like Olena or something. And so he's using his leverage here of his armies and his position, his hand, to try to get even more, as Kevin was griping about internally. He brings up marrying Marcella to one of his relatives instead of to Tristane. But it's the same answer from Kevin. He's like, look, we can't make enemies of the Darnish. We have to keep them in the fold. We can't just go pushing them aside. It's a bad time for that because what if they just join Aegon? And that's a good point. It's a good, the other, the other counselors are like, okay, yeah, fair point. Even Mace is like, all right, yeah, all right, fine. Of course, he's thinking of Willis. Willis for uh, Marcella. Another wrinkle. Again, one of the reasons why this situation is so complicated is the Sand Snakes are on there. Where you got Nymeria and Tyene coming. Kevin doesn't know what to make of that. He doesn't know them personally. So all he does is not tell anyone because he doesn't want to have Mace's anger piled on top of everything else that Mace is being annoying about. So just let that be a surprise. Handle that when it comes. But it's going to be a problem. <laughs> and it could be a much bigger problem. Not one for Kevin to deal with, obviously. But Another point Kevin makes is, is another thing they can't do is, yeah, Mace, you've got your armies here to threaten the faith, but don't push too hard. That's another person we can't make an enemy of. We don't want the Dornishman to be our enemy. We don't want the faith to be our enemy either. And it's for the same reason. You don't want the faith taking up arms or lending their support to one of these other candidates. The last thing they need is Aegon being supported by the faith. Another thing Mace does is he just he's willing to just drop like casual insults because he knows he's got the upper hand here. He says he calls the mountains men scum and says a dog takes after its master. And when he says a dog takes after his master, he's not referring to the mountains men. He's referring to the mountain, the mountains of Clegane. So of course he's a dog and the dog's master is Tywin. <laughs> so he was, <laughs> but fair play. That's my favorite line by Mace in this scene because yeah, Tywin is that brutal. And Gregor does, is that brutal because his master enables that. They're also both dead. They are also both dead. And that's really important too, because Kevin takes after Tywin as well. And that's an important part of this chapter is Varys saying, you're a decent man in service to bad people. We all have our thoughts on Kevin, but I do at least, and I don't think Kevin's a good man, but I would at least say that Kevin's the kind of, maybe I've said this before, but if Kevin were Ned Stark's brother, he would look a lot better because he is a follower and uh, he's doing a decent, competent job as a leader. Uh, if some things I would criticize from an ethical perspective, but 
he's been Tywin's dog too. Yes, Cleganes, the Cleganes are more literally that because it's their sigil. But Kevin has always been Tywin's right-hand man. And Tywin's career is full of atrocities. And Kevin has been part of most of these. When Tywin ordered Gregor Clegane, uh, Vargo Hote, and Emery Lorch to destroy the Riverlands, he didn't give the orders directly to those three. He gave that order to Kevin. And Kevin said, they will burn, my lord. Kevin then passed those orders on to those guys. Right? So, yeah, Mace's comment was aimed at Gregor, but it's aimed at Kevin, too. Kevin doesn't take it that way. Um, I don't, he doesn't take it at all. He doesn't catch the insult. But it's, it's a pretty good line by Mace there, and it's a good springboard for this discussion. Now to Sir Robert Strong. Everyone's like, oh, when that name gets mentioned, people are like, what is that guy? Uh, pretty much everyone knows, but no one wants to say and that's where things are going to come to a head because they're, they're, they have a good reason for not wanting to say it. Not only do they just not want to say it because it's creepy and who wants to be the guy to bring that up. Second of all, they actually need this monster to win. Yes, they don't like Cersei. Yes, they want her fangs pulled, so to speak. But they don't want her to die because again, legitimacy of Tommen comes into question. The Tyrells don't want that either because of course their power is tied to Tommen as well. But this is going to come to a head quite likely with the Sand Snakes because the Sand Snakes coming up, no one else is talking about Gregor. They will. They will for sure. Tyene will be looking to get in the good graces of the High Sparrow. She's the Septa type. She might tell him what's going on with the mountain. She might get suspicious. She, of course, cares very much about this whole mountain thing, uh, having killed her father and that whole business with the skull. They were suspicious about the skull. At the time, they're like, how, how could she possibly pretend that this man isn't dead? It would be so hard to conceal. And here they are, faces. They're like, wow, she really is doing that. She really is just throwing this in our faces. Who else could that possibly be? He's almost eight feet tall. And then they know she's deceptive. So they're like, okay, she's already... There's this murder plot of Tristane that they know about. Uh, they know all these other things she's lied about. So why not lie about this? So if they investigate, they find out it really is the mountain. Maybe they find out he's really dead. Tyene, if Tyene gets in good with the High Sparrow, which seems quite possible with Nymeria claiming Doran's seat on the council, they could talk to each other, pass information back and forth, coordinate. So pretty soon we might see the High Sparrow being like, all right, who is that? <laughs> kind of forcing the issue. It is not okay to have an undead Kingsguard. <laughs> so Kevin Lannister? had a strong suspicion of just who this Sir Robert really was beneath that gleaming white armor. A suspicion that Mace Tyrell and Randall Tarly no doubt shared. Whatever the face hidden behind Strong's helm, it must remain hidden for now. The silent giant was his niece's only hope, and pray that he is as formidable as he appears. I venture to say no worries on that last part. He almost certainly is as formidable as he appears. And again, we can look at the Mercy chapter for a clue or two here. It strongly suggests Cersei is in the clear, if not back in charge altogether. The trial is five days after this chapter. And by the events of Mercy, there are characters who are in this chapter that have made their way to Bravos. We see them taken in the town. So clearly a lot of time has passed, uh, a month or two or something. Kevin actually mentions, makes mention in this chapter that Cersei going forward is going to have a Septa and three novices selected by the High Sparrow that are around her at all times. Maybe Tyene could be one of them. That would be really interesting. 
uh, keeping an eye on Cersei like up front and with the High Sparrow's blessing and with all that and passing information back and forth. Very possible. And as we said, yeah, why not have the faith move to support Aegon? Cersei's reign, Tommen's reign, all sorts of problems. She's unpopular in terms of power games. Throwing yourself, throwing your power behind the one who's on the rise makes a lot of sense. You know, be on the winning side. Um, so yeah, I, we, we've talked about this off and on for quite a while now, and there just seems to be building up even more. Pycelle wonders. Uh, in a parallel to perhaps the Barrison chapter about buying out the Golden Company, kind of like how Missande wanted to try to corrupt the Selsword companies on the side of the Yunkai. There is an important difference here, though. Of course, some contracts are written in ink, some are written in blood. This is definitely more of the latter. However, as we also see with Selsword companies like the Second Sons, we shouldn't be assuming that all 10,000 members of the Golden Company are fully bought in on this whole, you know, yay Aegon thing. Come along and offer, the, certainly the High Lords, the ones who have lands to reclaim, that's their goal. But not all 10,000 members of the company have lands to reclaim. Some of them might, could be bribed away. The ones who are at the top, probably not. The ones who have lands and titles they want, probably not. But the lesser rank and file, maybe. There might be some opportunity there. So, but, what good is it to think of that if you have no money? And that's the big problem here. This is one of the reasons we know what comes next. We have Harry Swift tasked with trying to get loans. We see him in Bravos in the Mercy chapter with some of these mountains men with him, at least one of them. And we see how if you piece together all the places they want to get money from, you can see how it's just not going to work. Kevin thinks one of his recurring oversights that people have not just Kevin, but other people, he thinks, the man we need is Littlefinger. Peter Baelish had a gift for conjuring dragons from the air. Whew. You do not need him around. <laughs> so that is, uh, yet again, a person that has misjudged Littlefinger badly. Another thing that doesn't get advanced on, we, we're still apparently in a holding pattern on, on Dragonstone and Loras Tyrell. They talk about searching Dragonstone for dragon eggs and wealth, which is kind of silly because... Stannis was there forever, and these other people, they wouldn't have left anything there. So, yeah, if there is anything there, it's super well hidden. So I wouldn't pin it on Loras Tyrell if they didn't find anything. He's like, eh, I'm, I'm pretty sure Loras didn't search that thoroughly. Well, a thorough search probably wouldn't have made much difference. So as much as Mace Tyrell is throwing his weight around and being a jerk and, and being intimidating, Kevin's more worried about Le Randall Tarley. Here's an important quote. Tarley is the real danger, Sir Kevin reflected as he watched their departure. A narrow man, but iron-willed and shrewd, and as good a soldier as the Reach could boast. But how do I win him to our side? Too late, probably. Even if not for the whole getting killed part. So there's, it's too late on, on two reasons. One, Kevin, you are dead and you can't move anyone to your side. Uh, two, yeah, Tarly's probably already aligned with the Aegon and the Golden Company, so... He was, he's right to fear him. So this is probably what George is doing with the narrative here is telling us this guy's dangerous before he tells us what side he's on. He's still saying he's a Reachman, but we, uh, we know that he's probably with the, the other Reach faction. As I mentioned in the intro to this episode, Kevin thinks about putting Lancel in a white cloak, which is just wild. Uh, Joe suggests that this was probably a dream that Kevin had when Lancel was young that he hasn't given up on that he should have given up on. Because right now, it's ridiculous. And coming up with that dream now is silly. But if he had that dream long ago when Lancel was young and promising, that makes sense. 
even though Lancel was older and, and it wouldn't necessarily make sense for Lancel his, for his firstborn to be in the Kingsguard. Although Kevin's doesn't have like lands to pass on. So uh, those considerations are different when you're not landed. So it, it kind of fits as a, a dreamy he clung to early that he hasn't given up on, even though circumstances have changed to the point that it's kind of ridiculous to think that now. That doesn't mean Kevin wouldn't have gone through with it. So it's possible Varus saved Lancel <laughs> by killing Lancel's dad because if, if Kevin had gone through with that and put Lancel in the Kingsguard, it would have certainly killed him. Although Lancel's probably doomed anyway. There was a, there was a really good pun in that last line and that la- previous quote, either one or two quotes ago when Kevin says he had a strong suspicion of who this Robert Strong was. Uh, here's another, uh, this isn't wordplay, but it is ironic. Before he took his leave, he dropped to one knee and kissed his niece upon the hand. If her silent giant failed her, it might be the last kiss she would ever know. Whoops. No, Kevin. Cersei has more kisses coming her way. You are the one who does not. When he's thinking about her, this is when the chapter gets pretty rough because his thoughts are awkward. He is in denial about Tywin and worse, the way he thinks about Cersei and women in general is pretty bad. Um, And very much uh, hypocritical. He thinks about how it's sad that she's so demure and and restrained now, even though he's the reason she's like that, because this is because of the walk that she's behaving this way. He also makes a huge miss. He sees, he remembers what happened to his uh, mother and and then his stepmother, the lampmaker's daughter that was the lover to his father, Titos, and, and Tywin's father, too. Who, the one who was sent to walk in the streets after Titos died. He thinks that that removed her power and that's why it'll work on Cersei, which is almost baffling to me that he thinks this is going to work because Cersei's birth is a big part of why she has this power. Titos's uh, lover derived power from Titos. So when he died, her power was lost. Cersei's power isn't gone because she was stared at. It takes away some of her mystique, some of the fear that she was using to move people, but she is still the mother of the king. She's still a Lannister of Casterly Rock. That, this lampmaker's daughter did not have to fall back on after she was demeaned. Cersei does have that, not to mention Cersei has all these other things going for her, like the mountain and Kyburn and yeah, just other things that Kevin's stepmother never had that Kevin fails to consider. So it's another issue of classism that Kevin doesn't perceive. It's very similar to his mistake with Littlefinger and thinking that he's not dangerous, um, making these comparisons where he just ignores the huge shadow of caste over all this. I mean, of class over all this. Like Cersei's being a Lannister is totally the difference here, a huge difference here. And he doesn't acknowledge that at all. But he thinks about women in these other ways and he thinks about how beautiful she was and how weird it was that Rhaegar went for Lyanna instead of Cersei. And it's just awkward, isn't it? Kevin does not know what he's, what he's thinking about here. There's a, a moment of, uh, that makes, maybe feels a little conspiratorial when Cersei asks about Kevin's wife, Dorna, and whether she's going to come to court. And Kevin's like, no, no, she's, keep her away from this. And some of you wondered whether this is Cersei's like, really thinking ahead to like killing her or something. I don't really think that's what it is, but it's possible. Uh, I guess it's, it's, it's kind of moot, a moot point, but still. Uh, first up, we have Osney Kettleblack too. Uh, she's informed of what's going on with the Kettleblacks. 
They're pretty much all in big trouble now. All three of them have been imprisoned. And they all have the choice of fighting the wall or Sir Robert Strong. The, a rock in the hard place, really. <laughs> I mean, Sir Robert Strong has, has been portrayed as made of armored and stone. And the wall is a, is a hard place. It, it, thinking back to the first time y'all read this scene, did you think Cersei was going to kill Kevin? Because you probably were aware of the doomed nature of the epilogue character. Um, and having dinner with Cersei late in the chapter may have been <laughs> the lead-in. But no, you know, poison maybe. I was thinking of poison because Kevin was thinking, oh, maybe Cersei will throw wine in my face again. And when I read that line the first time, I thought it meant, oh, he's got the wrong idea of what the wine is going to be like. She's going to poison the wine or something like that. But of course, nothing like that happens. But uh, I just remember reading that back in 2011 and having that thought. <laughs> really, if they wanted to poison Kevin, he would have been poisoned. And probably not insert while having dinner with Cersei. That would be too obvious. But who does show up instead to change the scene and move it to a different location is a child who is solemn and silent. This is a little bird, most likely. And one thing that I've learned personally here in, on this particular reread is, is not just looking for patterns. He's always looking for patterns, but there's patterns within the patterns and how George plays with his own patterns. Winter is a huge topic. There's a lot to say about it from a logistical, narrative, supernatural, etc. perspective. There's lots of ways to approach it. Let's Always remember the interrupt the lore theme, which George loves to use. And here it strikes again in kind of a different way. Quote. Winter, said Sir Kevin. The word made a white mist in the air. He turned away from the window. Then something slammed him in the chest between the ribs, hard as a giant's fist. Ironic that being a fool is what kept Mace alive. And a traitor is perhaps keeping, being a traitor is keeping Tarly alive. But Kevin, his competence is what's getting him killed. He realizes right away that he's dying the way his brother did, via crossbow bolt. Probably why he thinks of Tyrion right away. He tries to stand, he can't. Same with Tywin. Tywin tried to stand up when Tyrion shot him. He couldn't do it. Varys notes that Pycelle let loose his bowels when he died. Another feature of Tywin's death scene that unpleasantly matches this one. Death is rarely pretty. Now, this is a particularly ugly, though, not because it's Kevin or the smell, it's because this person, Varus the Spider, whom we have identified since book one as a metaphorical agent of hell ever since he emerged from the darkness discussing plots that will cause massive suffering amidst dragon skulls and asking for a batch of tongueless child slaves from his partner in crime. I mean, <laughs> these kids are here. He whistles for them like they're animals. And they are little birds. To finish off a dying man, I mean, this is this character that on TV was portrayed as some great altruist, he is not. You cannot use child slaves and child soldiers and be a good person. I don't care what your end goals are. Yes, his end goals are better than Littlefinger's, for sure, because Littlefinger's all about himself. At least Varus could say, well, I want a better future for everyone. But it's still not that much better because it's just not that likely to work. Like, yes, your goal is more noble, but the end game isn't going to be that different. This is also exactly the kind of behavior that if it were discovered by, say, Daenerys Targaryen, you're getting killed. Or Arya Stark, perhaps. Ned Stark, if he knew this, and remember, when Ned first met Varys, something made him, he was creeped out by Varys. And we're made to believe it's because of Varys's being a eunuch and wearing makeup and lots of powder and just kind of coming off as weird. 
that we're supposed to believe that that's what sets Ned off. But so far, so much later, you just add it all up and Var- that's the, the true nature of Varus, I think, is what Ned was like feeling there and communicating to the reader. So Ned, though, just didn't ever fully grasp that because he had to deal with this devil. He made a literal deal with Varus, if we think of Varus as a devil, to save his own child. And of course, it didn't work out that well, but not all that's Varus's fault. Because Littlefinger is an even worse devil, and Littlefinger got involved, and he whispered in Joffrey's ear. <laughs> and you got two different devils whispering in different ears and all this stuff. Note the description, too. This is how George presents it when he comes out of, the sh- out of his hiding place and does his murder. He stood in a pool of shadow by a bookcase, plump, pale-faced, round-shouldered, clutching a crossbow in soft, powdered hands. Silk slippers swaddled his feet. Varys? Two f- books, almost two full books Varys has been missing. We, we didn't forget about him, of course, because his stuff is underway. Rather than seeing him directly, we've seen the results of his planning, the, the characters that he's been overseeing for so long. Uh, rather than him face-to-face, we get, you know, John Connington and Aegon and them. He emerges from the shadows here. He stood in a pool of shadow by a bookcase, it says, just like we thought about a, the great black beast of the Iron Throne standing in the shadows earlier in this very chapter. And it's also a throwback, a callback to how he emerges from the shadows in that scene with Arya without much warning and intent on some pretty serious intrigue. Arya overhears things that she doesn't understand that we can, as readers, are able to parse a bit. More so after the fact. When we look back on that scene, it all makes a lot more sense. She was afraid of being caught. She was afraid of the dragon skull. She was afraid of being lost. So she's not really focused on what they were saying. But putting it all together, not only were they discussing the death of her father and tens of thousands of people by their, you know, faux invasion of Dothraki and all that, but they were discussing these mutilated child slaves that all of this just to maybe have one good king for a while. That's their endgame. It's not necessarily a new dynasty. I mean, they, they, they want that. But like, it could just not happen. Like, Aegon could be sterile. Aegon could be a bad king after all. He could turn out bad. Like, the, it, it's not a good plan. <laughs> it's well executed. <laughs> but mm, there's another big flaw in it that's kind of outside their scope of preparation. Hell is generally seen as fiery, and in the moment where he emerged in that Game of Thrones scene with Arya, those dragon skulls really added to that effect because of their they, they conjure images of fire. But here, he's emerging in a wintry moment. Varys is standing there waiting for Kevin to turn around. Kevin notices that how cold it is. He says, winter. And then he gets shot by a crossbow bolt. So Varys is like, not Varys the spider here. He's Varys the ice spider. <laughs> the ice spider Varys. He's against sorcery. So in that sense, there's no hint that it's in use in his faction anywhere. There's even his Targaryen candidate, if we're right on our takes about him not being a real Targaryen, there's no magical blood even, which a lot of Tar- Targaryens seem to have uh, to some degree. So really, it's just like all the supernatural elements are stripped from the faction that Varys is leading. And he's really formidable, Varys is. Aegon is, Connington, they're, they're no joke. But it seems like this carefully planned long-term goal, politically timed perfectly, is timed extremely badly in terms of the supernatural world, something he has no connection to. Even as he's standing amidst winter and the cold, he doesn't know what it means. We as readers can unlock this, translate it, and go, 
Well, remember John thinking about spiders at the night fort and how the cold probably killed them off? Or the heat, <laughs> in this case? Varus has made an enemy of Daenerys, whether he knows it or not. Um, because the information is out there that I think she's going to learn. And, she, and he has to reckon with winter like everyone else. So I certainly wonder who's going to get blamed for Varus's murders. You can't just name one candidate. But I think a lot of it's going to uh, blow back on him eventually. Still, it's interesting to think about what he's done here and how it's uh, and, the, and the domino effect of Kevin's murder. Varus has his own take on it. He basically, as some people suggest, he's kind of having his mustache twirling villain moment where he kind of explains himself a bit. Here's what he says. Your niece will think the Tyrells had you murdered, mayhaps with the connivance of the imp. The Tyrells will suspect her. Someone, somewhere, will find a way to blame the Dornishman. Doubt, division, and mistrust will eat the very ground beneath your boy king, whilst Aegon raises his banner above Storm's End and the lords of the realm gather round him. Yeah, specific ideas, but in general, it's a thing that sows division because no one can be certain. Basically, as he rattles off these possibilities, they get more and more vague, but they're all point towards the same direction. No one's going to know. And that uncertainty is going to do a lot of work. Um, and he's, his, his, his specific guesses are probably right. Your niece will think the Tyrells had you murdered. Yeah, probably that is how she tends to think. Mayhaps with the connivance of the imp. Yeah, she tends to blame everything on Tyrion. The Tyrells will suspect her. Makes sense. She wants to get back in charge. They know that Kevin's the one that's been, that arranged the walk. They know that she knows that. Someone somewhere will find a way to blame the Dormenchman. Yep, that does seem to happen. It's exactly what he wants. None of them uniting. Uh, meanwhile, the rest of the realm unites around his candidate instead. And you gotta hand it to him. It seems like, at least in the short term, it's probably gonna work. But again, the short term. It does have, a, this chapter again, has a bit of John at the wall feel. How are all these factions gonna react to this important murder of a leader? Uh, some of them were loyal to that leader, not in the way that John's loyalty, uh, loyalty to John works, because John's like the kind of guy people really get behind, whereas Kevin is, doesn't really have that kind of charisma. But still, the blame on his death is going to cause a lot of suspicion, and there's going to be fallout. And it's really hard to predict how and why. And, and well, the why is pretty straightforward, but the order, again, just like in, at the wall, who's going to learn what first? When, who's going to learn about Sir Patrick versus who's going to learn about John versus who's going to learn about the order of these things? Who's going to learn about who did it? Same here. Different orders, different people finding out things in different times and, and reacting based on what they know and they may not always have all the information. So again, big old conundrum. Another one of the very small mentions here is Kevin thinking about the Rosby inheritance, which is something that's been an oddly recurring thing for something that seems minor, which might mean it's not going to be minor in the long term. And a couple of y'all, including Nina, still think that Olivar Frey is the best bet. One person mentioned, or one or two people mentioned the possibility that Braun will use the Stokeworth relation to Rosby to try to take it himself or for um, one of his allies if he ends up like reuniting with Tyrion or Aegon or something like that. Who knows? So, a lot of possibilities there. Just don't sleep on that plot line so you're not surprised by it when it potentially becomes important. We, we don't need to do it again, but I want to remind you all of the comparison of Aegon and Danny and how this so-called perfect prince 
is, as I've said plenty of times, pretty impressive. But again, it's just no substitute for what has actually been learned by Danny going through her real experiences and, of course, having real dragons as well. Rolling Knight adds another comparison to this pastiche of comparisons that I really like. It's, it's not an Aegon Danny thing, but an Aegon versus Renly. And he reminds us of Olena's quote, which is about, Re- about Renly, which was gallant, yes, and charming, and very clean. He knew how to dress and how to bathe. And somehow he got the notion that this made him fit to be king. You could change that description. It was like, okay, so this guy knows how to, has been schooled well. He knows how to make nets. He's felt fear before. It's a little better, but it still is pretty much in that same like Renly line of, yeah, this guy, everyone thinks this guy is great, but what has he actually done? What is he, where are the personality traits that make us think good ruler? The personality traits we've seen so far, like, okay, brave guy, maybe he's a good warrior, but that's not, we've seen what warrior means in terms of leader or king. It means very little. Robert, great example. Great warrior. Terrible king. And he's not nearly the only example. Nina jumps in to say, pour one out for the end of mainline Valarie Reedus. Yeah. Do it. Uh, cheers, everyone. Pour one out or take a sip or however you celebrate. It's a pretty big milestone for us. I am, I'm a little proud. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. We've done through a lot and I'm really happy with how much better we all understand the series. I think the fandom is better. The more of us get really deep into it. The more of us know these things, the more of us can talk about them, the bigger it all spreads, the more we all attract new people to it because our love of it, our excitement for it is is infectious, like the pale mare, but a good disease. (laughs) So back to Varus. It's funny, when this book came out, there was this chapter, despite the bajillion things we could say about it or the bajillion ways it could take us other directions and think about one of the first things people got really into on the Westeros.org forums discussing this chapter was this end moment. Not what it means, but just the fact that Varus is... People can't parse why Varus is saying all this stuff out loud. Like, is he really just spilling the, the beans like a fourth wall villain? Maybe. That might be it. Like, I don't know what George was thinking exactly. I can't pretend to sit here and tell you exactly what George was thinking. But I, I think this is just he's a human being. He's a refined, disciplined guy, and he's excited. His plot that he's been waiting for 20 years to put together, if not longer, is finally coming to, to a head, and he's making these incre- doing these final touches and making moves he's been waiting forever. Do you think? I bet he wanted to kill Pycelle long ago. That is an annoying dude. He's like, finally, I get to kill Pycelle. Finally, I can do it. I, mean, I bet he was kind of happy to do that. So... I don't know. I think maybe he's just a little excited. Maybe a little giddy. He's like, I'm finally getting to do all this. Even someone as controlled and refined as he is, like, finally, his moment has come. And it looks good. It looks like it's going to work because he's not aware of the supernatural stuff. So, hmm. Another point, uh, good catch by Stefan B. Another wordplay thing here. Uh, to, Kevin thinks, one of Tommen's kittens in a pit of vipers. And, well, the Sand Snakes, yeah. They're probably the ones who are going to kill Tommen. At least they're my top pick. It might not go that way, but either Tommen or Marcella, if not both. So yeah, that's uh, maybe this, that line maybe adds a little evidence to the fact that it'll be Tommen. 
A good question, too, about this Iron Bank debt. A couple of you guys brought this up, and I'm surprised I didn't think of it. The floating debt from the Iron Bank is now on stents, right? He's the one who's, who's got to pay it all back if he wins the throne. Well, we can all be pretty sure he's not gonna, though, right? So where is that debt gonna actually end up? Is it gonna end up on, like, Danny? Probably not that either. Bran? Is Bran gonna have all the debt at the end of everything? I don't know. That's kind of interesting. It's like, yeah, where is that going to land? You know the Iron Bank's going to just like right to the end, like the last page, they're going to be like, um, you owe us money. Here's an alternate theory for why the real reason Varus killed Kevin. It wasn't any of these things he said. Not at all. Not even a little. The real reason is when Kevin's talking to Tommen, Kevin says, oh, I'll set a trap for that bad cat. No. You do not set a trap for the cat. No. Stay away from Balerion. That's a good cat. It's the cat that stole from Tywin. That's the cat that led Arya downstairs. That's the real reason Varys killed him. He's like, oh, got to step in now. The cat's in danger. This fandom has is, is been around a while. It's going to be around a while. I consider it a forever fandom. I feel like I'll be in this fandom until the day I die. And yeah, I feel you like picture it's a Lord of the Rings, a Harry Potter even. Like, there are just some fandoms that even when there's not any new material that will ever be released again, there will be new, new material released again. Yeah, yeah. We're, 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 we got in, whether you got in a, a month ago or 10 years ago or 20 years ago when the first book was published, you, it was a good decision. <laughs> you, you got into something that's going to provide so much fun and happiness and enjoyment and friendships and all that. And um, yeah, I just can't say enough about it. Just like these chapters, I could, I'd never run out, I could never run out of things to say about A Song of Ice and Fire. I could also never run out of things to say about the A Song of Ice and Fire fandom. Aziz could also never run out of things to say. Yeah, that's just true. I'm a talkative dude. So thank you all very much. Really appreciate you being oh, on this long whoops. journey with us. My bad. I accidentally didn't put Brandon Winslow's super chat. Oh, there's another he one. He said, looking forward to the winds of winter and Duncan Egg, Valerie Redis. Yeah. Valerie Redi. Thanks Redi. for making our Sundays so awesome. Thanks, Bran. We appreciate it. Yeah. And Bran is one of the guys working with us on the uh, the chapter project. So you'll you'll get to see some of his creative efforts as well as he adds his uh, some music and maybe some voices as well. So this is, uh, yeah, lots of things like that going on. People... Um, participating in things we've got going on. So um, this is, again, not an ending. It's just a milestone. Last week, we covered 154 minutes, 37 seconds. This week, it was 142 minutes, 4 seconds. That brings us to, well, 2,922 minutes of 2,922 minutes. 100% of the way. Uh, like I said, I have, I'll have some figures calculated and, and added up and mashed up and figured out for next week. But one thing I did count was the total audiobook length of the five books to, to this point, it's 12,064 minutes and 20 seconds. So if you listen to this on audio, I did both. I read them and listened to them, did a little of both, like chores. I listen. Sometimes I sit down and read. Um, so if you listen to the audiobooks all the way through, that's about how long it was 12,000 minutes. <laughs> that's, that's wow. Which, how many days is that? Uh, um, let's see, that's 200 hours. 200 hours? So. That. 10 days, about 10 days. Yeah. A little less. 8.3 days. Yeah, 8.3 days. Wow. Nice. George, you gave us a lot, but we want more, please. <laughs> and we'll be here for whenever that comes and even when it's not here. So thank you all again. Um, check out the podcast version if you are interested in seeing the difference between the video and pod version. Also, don't forget that on our website, 
You can go to any chapter, during, uh, any book, any review that we've done. Uh, it's all I'll raid nicely um, in order. Pick the book, pick the chapter you want to go straight to. You don't have to listen to episodes all the way through to find the spot you want. So we're trying to make Valar Reredus something that you can refer to. You don't have to just listen to the whole thing. <laughs> we try to like, you can listen to it in parts, pick out a spot, kind of focus in on that. Um, we hope it's a, a great tool for entertainment and preparing for the Winds of Winter, both. We mentioned a couple of our scripted episodes. The Battle of Fire, of course, was a big one. That one's pretty much been a part of all the recent chapters uh, leading up to that. The Hellhorn again. Um, and of course, I mentioned Aziz versus the Adantial Dragons epilogue. If you didn't get enough, well, my takes from five years ago are pretty different than these. Uh, I left a lot of those, a lot of the better ones out of this so that they wouldn't be um, repetitive. And again, uh, I'll say for probably the fifth time this episode, not over. <laughs> we have a wrap-up episode next week um, featuring two of our MVPs for Valerie Reedus. That's Joe Buckley and Nina Friel. They'll be with us live as they usually are at the uh, end of each book. Again, I want to shout out their work. Isle of Faces is a great podcast. Joe has just been getting better and better at podcasting. He was, you know, newish to the game. Um, it's a skill like anything else. And, you know, following along with his writing and his actual podcasting, just you, you put much this much work into something, you get better at it. You know, I look back at my early episodes, I'm like, ooh. <laughs> Some of the ideas are pretty good, but the presentation, not great. Joe never had that problem. But nonetheless, you work at this enough, you get better at it. And I've noticed that with him. Nina as well. Another person who came to this with a lot of skill, a lot of talent, but just more and more writing. You just get better at it. You get, you get, and you know the material better. Nina's blog, tum, uh, goodqueenalley.tumblr.com, as I like to say, Good Queen Alley with one L. Check it out. She's written so much on so many topics. She has fun with things like house words, making up words for houses that don't have them. She's got a big backlog of those. Really well thought out. She really touches on, gets gets deep into the history of those houses to to come up with those. But more importantly, just writing about the series itself. A um, lot of knowledge on the history of the series. It's one of the reasons we communicate so much is we're both particularly into the uh, Song of Ice and Fire history. So yeah, check them both out. Huge thanks to them both for all their great work. Um, Valerie's would have been thinner, uh, weaker without them. And also we'll have Lady Gwyn, our usual extra guest, who is a representative half of Radio Westeros. They're uh, the show that we have worked with the most. Of any other podcast in this great community, there's no one that we've worked with more than Radio Westeros. And that's going to continue as well. So see you all next week for that, I hope. And if not, we'll see you for future streams. Thanks again to uh, Joe and Nina. Thanks to Ashea. Thanks to History of Westeros Mods. For all their great work. So many chapters you guys posted. I, I think there's 350 some chapters. So that's how many chapters the History of Westeros mods posted over the last, uh, over the span of this time. Every single time they posted art, every single time they posted quotes, every single time they tagged it so it could be found, every single time it was um, timely and helped me out to get these discussions uh, more thorough, to catch things I missed consider things I would never have thought of. Um, real world parallels, things like that. There's lots of things. There's always so much to talk about. Thanks as well to people on our other social media networks, Flick, Facebook, I've mentioned already, but also Slack and Discord. 
Lots of great discussions there as well. Some of these communities are fairly new for us. We didn't really have them going that strongly when we started Valarboretus. And thanks to Valarboretus and other reasons, they've grown. So if you still haven't checked them out, well, why not now? Thanks as well to Michael Clarfeld. That's claradox.de. That's his site. He made our video intro. He made the maps you see behind me. And you can get some yourself if you go to his shop. Thanks as well to Kevin McLeod for the Valar Rita's intro music. Thanks to Joey Koval and Jesse Townsend for... I do that every time, I swear. Joey Townsend, Jesse Koval. Why do I mix their names up every time? Sorry, guys. They're probably not even listening to this, but <laughs> they, they must think I've married them. <laughs> They're great dudes, musical guys. Love the musicians, always support the music. And they have made our theme song memorable um, over the years. Thanks to Benjineer. Uh, our man behind the scenes makes our audio quality better. Thank you so much to our patrons who make this show financially viable. I can't imagine how much less time I'd have for all this if if it wasn't for you all. So thanks for that. Shea thanks you as well. Uh, here be dragons. And um, we have, I know that nerd you for- speak for me? Yeah, I thanked for you. Are you not thankful? No. <laughs> I'm very thankful. <laughs> Touche, touche. That's what I get for trying to speak for someone. I shouldn't do that. So, uh, yeah, so here be dragons. Our good friends over there, Stephen Stark, just survived the, the strange Texas long night and is back online talking to Nessie of Unspun Yarn with another edition of I Know That Nerd. So if you're curious about Nessie, well, check it out. And we'll see you all next week for the wrap-up episode and for many more Valar Reredi in the future. Can't wait. Thanks, everybody. Valar Reredis.